0: This is hell.
1: On the line with us right now is David Graeber. He is talking to us live from a squatted free education uh, movement space on Gray's Inn Road in London. Good morning, David. Uh, David is an anthropologist Professor at the London School of Economics And the author of the amazing book Debt the first 5,000 years Uh, He's on today to discuss his piece in the just Released issue of the amazing Magazine The Baffler which is back Out in print the name of his article Is what's the point if we can't Have fun we have a direct link to that Article at our website if you go There right now David after reading your Article I think the best way to start this conversation Is to say uh, Or to ask you is play is fun an illusion
0: no Um, I I can't imagine anything that's less of an illusion I think that that we're encouraged to think that it is that there's something wrong with like the idea that we're doing something just because we enjoy it but that's exactly the sort of thing the sort of mindset I was trying to challenge
1: Do you believe, because as you're writing at the beginning, you start your article by retelling the story of how you and a friend of yours, uh, you spent like a half an hour observing an inchworms playing. It's really great. Um, And then you uh, write, most of us hearing the story would insist on proof. How do we know the worm was playing? Perhaps the invisible circles it traced in the air were really just a search for some unknown sort of prey or a mating ritual. Can we prove they weren't? Uh, Do you believe the scientific analysis of the inchworm is calculating a machine rather than just having fun do you believe that analysis is affected by the economy the scientists live in on a daily basis whether that's within the institution where they work or within their personal life
0: that's all these things i mean very often in, in scientists personal life uh, it completely contradicts all of their theories uh, but we're taught that only certain types of arguments can really be taken seriously it's very similar to an economics um, you know we we in our daily lives, we know we do a lot of things because we care about people, or or sometimes because we really hate people. That you know make no sense by economic logic. But when you're trying to you know when you want to look scientific, you have to pretend that everybody's motivated by rational means, and somehow they manage to convince themselves that rational means means greed and selfishness. You are pursuing self interest in some way, um, and if you can't figure out a way that it's pursuing a self interest then you're not doing a scientific analysis. I don't know why it is that being scientific means acting in a way that most of us in our daily life, we could consider just pure cynicism, but that's the way it seems to work. And same thing in the animal world. We we apply this logic that, well, we have to figure out a rational motivation for why this is evolutionarily adaptive. Um, And if we can't, then we just can't really say anything about it.
1: You're right. I'm not saying that ethologists um, actually believe that animals are simply rational, calculating machines. I'm simply simply saying that ethologists have boxed themselves into a world where to be scientific means to offer an explanation of behavior in rational terms, which in turn means describing an animal as if it were a calculating economic actor trying to maximize some sort of self-interest, whatever their theory of animal psychology or motivation might be. Whether it's science or journalism, there's this attempt to be ethical by being objective. Yet, as in journalism, objectivity can never be truly attained. That said, objectivity as a goal can lead to less opinion and more factual reporting. Why shouldn't a good, objective, unopinionated scientist explain behavior in rational terms rather than seeing fun reporting rational actions? After all, isn't that what we want with climate change scientists, not any political agenda against fossil fuel consumption, but those who have made a rational decision on global warming.
0: Well, I mean, I'm, no one's against rationality. Um, what I'm saying is, what we we have this strange idea of what rationality is. You know, why don't we do a rational analysis, which says that, um, to some degree, animals just want to have fun. I mean, it would be accurate in a way it's irrational to just pretend that there's only one or two motivations that affect all all beings, which is what we seem to do.
1: You write that the experience of animal play is considered something of an intellectual scandal. Why would it be an intellectual scandal?
0: Well, that's the interesting question. Why would it? I mean, you know, like, why shouldn't things want to have fun? If you could fly, wouldn't you? And there was a time when it wasn't that way, even in the 19th century. Um. I go back to Prince Kropotkin, who's both a great naturalist and a famous anarchist who wrote a book called "Mutual Aid." most people don't really understand this uh, book. they think it has to do with altruism, because you know that for, for if you're an economist or you're thinking in like, economic logic, altruism is the big problem. So how do you explain that people are ever nice to anyone? How do you explain that you know, anyone ever violates their own self-interest to advance the self-interest of someone else. Um, Again, because somehow, in order to have a rational—we convinced ourselves that in order to have a rational explanation of any phenomena, we have to attribute only cynical motives to people. Um, But what—so they say, well, what Kropotkin is saying is that, you know, animals will behave altruistically. Why do they do that? And, of course, you know, it's true, he was talking about that to a certain degree, and there are a lot of things you simply can't explain through individual maximization, like, you know, bees will sting when they sting you, they die. Why will they sacrifice themselves to protect the hive? Um, if there's a bunch of herd animals and a predator shows up, one will, like, who sees the predator will say, I lie, I lie, and will scream, um, alerting all the other ones, thus drawing attention to themselves and making it much less likely that they will individually survive. So that's... You know, that became a big mystery. People said, "Well, I guess the only way to explain that is inclusive fitness. There's genes. So the thing that's maximizing, the thing that's like trying to pursue its self-interest, isn't the animal, but the animal's genetic code. So suddenly, a strand of DNA becomes this sort of self-interested actor, trying to like ma- to be a selfish gene, as Richard Dawkins puts it, trying to sort of maximize and spread itself out as far as it possibly can. But if you look at what Dawkins said." Actually, he said a lot more than that. He wasn't just talking about altruism. He was talking about cooperation between species, which obviously isn't advancing anybody's genetic code. Um, he was also talking about cooperation, which is just for fun. He has these wonderful passages about birds, for example. Birds that will flock up and do these crazy military style maneuvers, bank this way, bank that way, curve around a mountain, and for no no reason whatsoever. You know, it's just they're just doing it for fun. And often like one species of bird will do this and like other birds will like sneak in because it's so much fun. They want to get in and hope nobody notices they're not the same type of bird. Now, how do you explain that in terms of some sort of inclusive fitness or evolutionary adaptation. You can't. So they just ignore that part of
1: the argument. Right, right. We are speaking with David Graeber. By the way, this is an amazing article. And The Baffler, I want to thank John Summers and all the great people over at The Baffler for hooking me up with David because it's a great new issue of The Baffler. This is an amazing article that you have got to read, David's oh, new article at The Baffler, What's the Point If We Can't Have Fun? We are speaking to David Graeber. He is talking to us live from London. He's at a squatted free education movement space on Gray's Inn Road or the pub across the street, which is it, this morning or this? Afternoon, David.
0: Actually, I'm in the back room of the swap. They're having a little session in the front, and I'm I'm, I'm here in the back.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. So you know, maybe maybe Freud would have something to say about this. Uh, but the first thing when I said when I read this was how the Christian right here in the U.S. claimed for so long that homosexuality homosexuality wasn't natural because you didn't see it in the animal kingdom, but you do. So in some fact, have you right. Fact, so <laughs> some have turned to the argument that well, we're better than gay animals. Is there some sort of of a commonality or link between scientists and being scandalized by the notion of animal play and Christians being scandalized by homosexuality in the animal kingdom.
0: Well, yeah, it's a perfect example. because They're having sex just for fun. They're not, it's not reproductive, right? If it's not reproductive, they're not supposed to be doing it. Um, in a way, that's why I said that um, you know, evolutionary psychologists have there's this famous book called Why Sex is Fun. They claim to be able to explain why sex is fun, but they can't explain why fun is fun. Um, that's the real question. Why do we do things for fun to begin with? Why do we do things for love, for pleasure? And and again, I go back to Kupontka, He he says that, you know, if you're a social being, then if you do something for fun, doing it with someone else or doing it with a group is even more fun. So, you know, what could... and we several all the time. I mean, most of our pleasures are pleasurable because we do them with other people. I always make the example of a, a restaurant, you know. I mean, you don't really want to go to a
1: big expensive French restaurant all by yourself. Right.
0: Half the fun is the fact you're you're doing it with someone else. So pleasure is something you do with someone else.
1: You write, uh, "Why do animals play?" Well, why shouldn't they? The real question is, why does the existence of action carried out for the sheer pleasure of acting, the exertion of powers for the sheer pleasure of exerting them, strike us as mysterious? Why does it? Te- what does it tell us about ourselves that we instinctively assume that it is? We were talking with Sarah Kenzior, who is a columnist for Al Jazeera oh, English. Okay. Uh, I really admire her work oh fantastic she's now she just joined our staff this week as a new correspondent on our show She also writes for the uh, Chronicle of Higher Education. She had an article called The Price of Creativity on how New York City's prices Mm -hmm. were making a cultural hub inaccessible to creative artists. In the article, she talked about how the art that's produced is often accepted, Mm -hmm. but the lifestyle and the process and the struggling that's necessary for a starving artist to produce is often hated, mocked, or dismissed. Does the existence of action carried out for sheer pleasure strike us as mysterious? Because more than anything else, The one shared characteristic we all have is, and this includes our, you you know, you commies out there who aren't out uh, living in some participatory (laughs) economics commune off the grid and feeding yourselves, is that we're all capitalists?
0: That's ultimately the message. I mean, what what Sarah Kanziro is talking about is is something that goes back to the 19th century, the birth of Bohemia. Um, Someone once said that, you know, Bohemians and bourgeois people hate each other because... Bohemians are people who sacrifice comfort for the sake of pleasure, and bourgeois people are people who sacrifice pleasure for the sake of comfort. Um, But, you know, if you think about it, that sort of Crazy creative pleasure is where almost everything we consider worthwhile actually comes from. Um, they need it they can't do without it, but they also have to hate it and There is a sort of a feeling in our culture that play the creativity is all it's almost demonic you need it to sort of drive the engine but then but it scares you um you need to isolate it and put it in some place where it's not that dangerous. Uh, we have to isolate it from the political layer, uh, domain or any kind of imagination or sense of play or fun is only going to lead to the gulag, you know, any sort of transformative visionary politics scares us. Creativity is something that, you know, we obviously know what we need and we talk as if we like it all the time, but really we don't. Um, I find this in academia all the time. People, you know, why do you go into an academic job? Why do you become a scholar? I mean, it's partly because it's it's fun. I mean, you could if for the six, seven, and eight years you spend in grad school, you could go to law school for two or three years and make eight times the money, you know? Um, the reason why you go into academia is because it's pleasurable. It's fun. It's basically kind of a form of play. You get to play with ideas. But, you know Somehow academics manage to convince themselves that, in order, you know, what was the insecurity of the job market? That in order to be able to like really get that security, that comfort, you have to give up the pleasure. Yeah. So um, and and you have to become this sort of boring pedantic academic politician, um, citing the right things, thinking the right things, publishing in the right places. It all becomes this careerist, professionalized cage, and 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 you hate yourself for it, and you. you, you and, and thus, people you really hate are anybody who seems to, else who seems to be having fun. You know, I've had this for my whole career. I think that um, you know, when I was a junior professor, one reason senior professors really didn't like me very much is because I wasn't miserable. I was really enjoying what I was doing.
1: <laughs> you know, uh, I love that answer. That's a great answer. You know, uh, one of the things that I had people say to me about the, about talking to you about this article, they were like, oh, you're going to have uh, David Graeber on. Great, you're going to talk about Occupy Wall Street. Great, you're going to talk about the history of debt. And I'm like, no, I'm going to talk about fun because that's what I want to talk yeah. about. Now. Exactly. And because it's fun. But one of the things that people said to me was, uh, how are you going to have a conversation about fun with David Graeber? That seems incredibly esoteric. And I know that you've already touched on this a lot within our conversation already, but so people don't think that this is so disconnected, that this is just some highfalutin discussion that we're trying to have here. Uh, How does this debate over, if fun exists, how does that directly impact and directly affect the lives of our listeners every day?
0: Well, I mean, it's critical because people tell you that you're supposed to be ashamed of fun or you're supposed to contain it in very, very careful areas. You know, maybe you can do it when you're around your kids. because kids are allowed to have fun. So that's one reason people want to have kids to begin with, you know, is because they get to vicariously have some fun, uh, play around. Um, or, you know, there's certain domains of consumerism where you're allowed to do it, but it's contained. We're almost scared to let it go. Um, And as a result, we end up trapped in this situation where, you know, work, which is the death, you know, defined as being the opposite of fun, we convince ourselves that work is moral, right? But work means not having fun. Um, Work means doing something you don't really want to do. Because if you're having fun doing it, if you're enjoying doing it to any degree, then it's not really work. And therefore, you're, you know, you're not even as morally a good person as if you're doing something that makes you miserable. And, and, we and there's this mutual resentment. Like, if somebody seems to be having fun, we get angry at them on some level, you know? How come they get to, like, enjoy their job? How come they get to do something they really like? How come they get to do something that's actually worthwhile and helps people? You know, that's just point point of the point of my, my, my bullshit jobs piece that I wrote. Um, it's about, you know, resentment of people who get to have real jobs, let alone fun jobs. Um, And it's a way of our making ourselves collectively miserable because everybody's trapped in a strange morality whereby if you're enjoying what you do, then somehow there's something wrong with you. You know, you're taking advantage of other people who have to be miserable.
1: You know, I hear that uh, so often from uh, even some of my very closest friends. Uh, I don't make dime one at this. I am hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt from doing this show. (laughs) And still, I get grief from people who make six figures— Telling me, hey, man, I can't believe that you're just pursuing. It, it's a horrible life that I'm leading. I have no money whatsoever. I'm enjoying my life. I, en- I have fun doing what I do. But there's, a, there's an intense penalty to it. My dad used to explain it to me this way. Uh, he used to say, you know, you got to go to work. And I was like, you know, why do I want to work? It's all a scam. My boss is going to rip me off. Every step along the way, I'm going to get ripped off. You've told me this your whole life. You've been ripped off your whole life. And he just looked at me and he said, there's a reason they call it a job.
0: Yeah, I was really lucky that way. My father, you know, I come from a working class family. My father was a plate stripper. He worked in offset photo lithography, which doesn't really exist anymore. Uh, But I remember one time when I was like 12 or 13 years old, he said to me, David, you know, everything you see around you, I earned that with my own two hands, working nine to five. You know, I went in every day, I punched the clock, I worked really hard. That's why we have this nice apartment. That's why we have everything that we have. So, David, it was horrible. Don't do that. <laughs> Trying to figure out some way you'll get a nine to five
1: job. I don't know. I think he's an academic. <laughs> I wish I would have had that advice. Uh, unfortunately, my dad just told me uh, uh, just make as much money as quickly as you can. Oh, this is the other great advice my dad had. This is, this is great advice to get from your dad. Never have kids. It's the biggest mistake you'll ever make.
0: Oh, thanks. Uh, Yeah, thanks. It was really— Glad to know what a difference they made in your life. (laughs) Exactly, exactly.
1: (laughs) So I I thought I'd send your article to my sister, who is a biologist, a Ph.D., author of something like, I don't know, like a half dozen textbooks, uh, herpetologist, uh, entomologist. uh, And here's what she wrote. Of course, she loved your article, by the way, and she said she's going to use it for classes as a discussion within her biology classes. Uh, She wrote, of course, to a biologist, everything comes down to procreation, so it all leads back to sex. Survival of the fittest is another way of saying the species persists based on the reproductive fitness of its members. That's the theme of my animal behavior class, actually. The students consider different behaviors' effects uh, on how their effect on uh, reproductive fitness. Lots of good discussions arise, and it's a lot Of fun. So is anything fun or are we always simply trying to reproduce? And what about someone like me who does not want to reproduce and is not reproduced according to America's legal system? Is my fun still driven by an innate desire for reproduction for sex, whether I act on it or not?
0: Well, I mean, you know, the biologists have a point that if you don't reproduce, like, you know, if you have a species that doesn't reproduce, well, then that, that species won't be around for very long. So you got to do it. But just the fact that, you know, somebody's got to be doing it isn't a motivation for everything that ever happens. It's just something you can't ignore. Um no, I actually, in the, in the piece, I propose something much more profound. I say, well, you know, the world is full of self-organizing systems, as scientists, as scientists call them. Things that seem to have sort of homeostatic mechanisms for regulating themselves, whether it's an electromagnetic field or a crystalline structure that forms all these incredible patterns and they get more and more complicated and build on themselves. Um, even, even, you know, Subatomic particles that they are self regulating systems on some level nobody's quite sure how that happens, but it makes a certain amount of sense that because the way we talk about evolution it's as if the world is just these automatic machines that follow natural laws, where the natural laws come from, you know then nobody says they just somehow appeared at the Great Bang and have never changed ever since um, but Okay, so there are these natural laws that come out of nowhere, and everybody's just obeying them, and they're little machines bouncing around. And then suddenly, at some point, bam, we get humans, and we get philosophers and poets, and they come completely out of nowhere. Um, That doesn't make any sense. So clearly, something like thought, something like the mind, has to exist So. You know, if you're going to take a materialist explanation of where things come from, unless you're going to say it's spirit or it's imposed somehow on material reality, it comes from someplace else. It's got to come from the world somehow. There's a more complex version of these self-organizing systems that are already going on. But then the question is, what motivates it? And, and, and this was the big point that I was trying to make in the piece, that, all right, you know, we seem fine with this idea of the selfish gene, that somehow our DNA molecules, which are just, you know, uh, strands of amino acids, um, somehow they, like, want to expand. You know, they, they want through sex and reproduction. And they want to have as many copies of themselves as possible. So we're willing to attribute this sort of self-interested motivation to certain types of cells. But why not a crystal? Why not a snowflake? You know, why not an atom, an electron? I mean, we, don't, we can't predict how electrons jump. A whole point of quantum theory is that you can't actually predict what any particle is going to do. You can, like, do a statistical analysis, say 40% of them will do this and 20% will do that. But you can't predict what this one's going to do. Um, it seems something like free will, but somehow we, sh- we shudder at the idea of doing the same thing as we do with DNA molecules. You know, we're more than happy to say DNA wants to reproduce. We all say, oh yes, of course, this is just a metaphor, but you know, they say it. They don't really believe do it's just a metaphor. Um, why? not do that with a snowflake? Why not do it with these other things? Well, it's easy, because you can't apply an economistic, self-interested model to a snowflake. A snowflake doesn't have a self-interest. You can't apply it to an electron. An electron is not trying to reproduce. It's not trying to, like, you know, gain an advantage over other electrons. The only way that you could attribute agency or some sort of intentionality to those sorts of phenomena would be to say... They're, you know, they're exercising freedom just for the sake of doing so. But then you're saying, basically, they're having fun. It's a form of play. Play is like, if anything, the basis of all physical reality. It's the ultimate natural principle. If you think of the world that way, it's a very different place.
1: Yeah, because if you think about it in the way within the rational scientific way that you're talking about, it seems like we live in this world that has absolutely no free will, and we're just very complex robots that keep moving yeah. forward. But does, uh, does science rationalize, excuse, or justify uh, this kind of greed that uh, they believe that we have as far as just being these kind of very complex robots that keep moving forward? And is sex greedy?
0: Well, I mean that's the funny thing if you're if you're too greedy of your sex, everybody will admit that like you know you're a bad person um but they have these models which find it you know which would make it difficult to explain why they um you know just going around um impregnating everything in sight would not be a rational and appropriate strategy um yeah, there's a million contradictions in that position. It doesn't make any sense. But you know, it's it's driven by that la- rational maximizing model. Which you know, once you decide that somebody's got to be maximizing something, then you're stuck with all these bizarre contradictory ideas of what human life is all about.
1: You have this, and you were mentioning this before, you write, as a result, uh, the neo-Darwinists went uh, even farther f- than the Victorian variety. If old school social Darwinists like Herbert Spencer viewed nature as a marketplace, albeit unusually cutthroat one, the new version was outright capitalist. The neo-Darwinists assumed yeah. not just a struggle for survival, but a universe of rational calculation driven by an apparently irrational imperative to unlimited growth. Uh, this, anyway, is how the Russian challenge was understood. Prince Peter podkin's actual argument of cooperation the russian argument is far more interesting much of it for instance is concerned with how animal cooperation often has nothing to do with survival or reproduction but as a form of pleasure in itself i, I know this sounds yeah. kind of like a stretch but is this kind of the very essence the very foundation of the cold war did being anything other than a cutthroat capitalist just win
0: Well, the Cold War didn't, yeah, the Cold War made it an ideological imperative to say that capitalism itself is located in, you know, in our genes. Um, But even in the 19th century, and one thing we don't realize is how much the laissez-faire economists and the early Darwinian theorists were actually talking to each other. Like the phrase survival of the fittest was not invented by Darwin. Darwin got it from Spencer and Spencer was a sociologist. So he, uh, he was actually a free market guy and he read an early draft of Darwin and said, yeah, that's it. It's just like, you know, it's just like the market. The market is everywhere. And he coined this phrase survival of the fittest and then, and then Darwin liked that so much that he adopted it in the next volume of his book. Um, so these guys were talking to each other. It was bouncing back and forth. So even back in the 19th century, they were trying to make the argument that capitalism was really natural. Um, we're all basically capitalist. Um, they didn't have genes yet. Uh, but then, you know, the Russians, um, there's a whole alternative school which was talked about cooperation. And Kropotkin, who was an anarchist, came out and sort of put a shot across the bow, bow actually, of the social Darwinist position. And said, well, yeah, but, you know, almost all human achievements is through cooperation, not through competition, and even animals you know cooperate, and they enjoy cooperation, and you know, you're just looking at one side of the picture. Sure, competition exists, but it's not really what drives things forward. Um, so they had, they had to scramble. You know, they really took this threat seriously, and that's why they came up with an explanation for altruism and cooperation, that, um, where it's genes. Um, the discovery of genes and eventually the double helix, you know made it easier to make this argument. But in doing so, what I argue is they went from a mere market model, which is what they have in the 19th century. We're all just trading on the market and trying to maximize our advantage, to this idea of capitalism. is what's capitalism? Capitalism is based on infinite accumulation. Every little firm is trying to grow as much as possible. Um, that's why economies always have to expand. And that the new version, where you have the selfish gene. And, you know we're willing to sacrifice ourselves for what was that famous um, like the biochemist said, you know, for two brothers or eight cousins, or, you know, to maximize our the furtherance of our genes. It's the genes that are really the, pushing it. But the genes want to expand infinitely. So that's like real capitalism. It's not just the market, it's like yeah. little, we're all, little, our, our genetic codes are these little corporations which are seeking infinite growth.
1: Uh, you right there is a way out of the dilemma And that's the discussion of fun And if it actually exists within nature And the first step uh, is to consider That our starting point could be wrong Reconsider the lobster Lobsters have a very bad reputation among philosophers uh, yeah. Who frequently hold them out as examples Of purely unthinking, unfeeling creatures Presumably this is because Lobsters are the only animal most philosophers Have killed with their own two hands before eating But in mm-hmm. fact, scientific observation Has revealed that even lobsters engage In some forms of play If that is the case, to call such creatures robots would be to shear the word robot of its meaning. What would happen if we proceeded from the reverse perspective and agreed to treat play not as some peculiar anomaly, but as our starting point, a principle already present not just in lobsters and indeed all living creatures, but also on every level where we find what physicists, chemists, and biologists referred to as self-organizing systems. If we viewed the world that way, how would our world... World change, David?
0: Well, I think a lot of things would be easier to understand. Um, I think that it would open up really interesting new areas for research, because it's not like things like animal play aren't studied, but it's almost as if people are embarrassed to study them. So there's whole domains of animal behavior, of human behavior, that we know it exists, and we're not going to deny it, but we don't like to talk about it. You know, that's not what we want, think is interesting or important. It's the self-interested behavior that we think is interesting or important. But we can completely reverse the rubric and start with the play and the fun, and, and, and you know, why do people put on rituals? Is it Barbara Ehrenreich made this piece, uh, a point in her little companion piece, too, which I thought was really cute, because in a way, you know, here I am, an anthropologist, talking about biology. So she's like, okay, you could do that. I'm a biologist. I'm going to talk about anthropology. And she talked about festivals, you know. Anthropologists find all these crazy, masking carnival festivals all over the world, and the first instinct was to say, well, they must follow a social function. They must reproduce social order in some sense. They must be ways of inculcating ideological ideas about proper hierarchy. You know, there must be something other than what they seem to be. But maybe they are largely what they seem to be. Maybe the major motivation for having elaborate rituals is because they're really fun. Maybe that's why we still have a monarchy in England. You know, they're using that sense of pleasure that we get from having all these crazy costumes and, 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 and ceremonies and using it against us to maintain a class system. <laughs> maybe it's a political message here. You know, we've got to come up with something even more fun. Even crazier costumes, even better costumes.
1: <laughs> And I did see the opening <laughs> ceremonies last night, so I think that uh, there are, there's a nice tablet there for them to use, template for them to use. Uh, this brings me back to my sister, the biologist's uh, email. She writes, the problem with determining the presence of fun is that the defi- definition is all about what it's not. A behavior that is not about mating, that, not about, mm-hmm. that it's not about finding prey, that it's not about improving fitness, reflexes, et cetera, that makes it just about impossible to prove. You have to prove that it's not anything else. Based on that, it'd be hard to prove that humans engage in fun either. Do we have to prove exactly. it's absolutely nothing else to prove that it's fun?
0: Well, that's exactly the problem that I start with, is that, you know, here's an inchworm. It seems to be dancing around in a goofy way for no particular reason. But no one's willing to accept that it's just having fun until you go through every possible other thing that could possibly be doing and prove that it's not doing one of those things. Well, how do you do that? You know, just because something's fun doesn't mean it might not be good for other things, too. That doesn't mean those other things are the primary reason. So, you know, we just need to start with the obviously observable reality. You know, um, here's a bird. He's, like, tobogganing down a – there's a things video been going around YouTube recently of a crow tobogganing down a roof, like, repeatedly on a little tin can top or something like that. It's like, okay, there's no functional, rational, utilitarian explanation for this birds tobogganing because – same reason you're toiling, it's fun. So let's start from that, and, and and then say, well, we have something else too. That's interesting. But like, you know, accept accept reality as presented to us and as our starting point. Ants. I was really impressed by this. Apparently, since the 19th century, it has been observed that ants. I mean, sometimes they have real wars between ant hills, but sometimes they have mock wars. It's like ant capture the flag or something. You know, two different ant hills have these big battles and nobody gets hurt. They all go home. And if ants can have fun, come on.
1: So uh, just a couple more questions for you, David. Uh, Actually, just one last question for you. It's kind of a two-parter. We've been speaking with David Graber. This has been a fantastic conversation. And uh, you got to read... David's article at the Baffler What's the point if we can't have fun There's a direct link to it at our website Takes you directly to the Baffler's website where you can read The article there. Uh, David has been speaking To us live from a squatted free education Movement space on Gray's Inn Road in London. He is an anthropologist A professor at the London School of Economics And author of the book Debt the First 5,000 Years. Again His article at the Baffler The just released issue of the Baffler What's the point if we can't Have fun in a couple weeks. We'll be Doing our Phonathon fundraiser, and we're going to be giving out uh, past issues, back issues of the Baffler to some people who donate to WNUR during our Phonathon fundraiser. David, our last question, as it is for okay. all of our guests, is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might okay. hate the response. So I guess this is kind of a two parter. I couldn't decide which of these should be my question from hell. Should it be, is sex fun or is fun sex? Or should it be, is play the meaning of life? So can you answer both of those questions from hell? Is sex fun or is fun sex? And is play and fun the meaning of life?
0: Well, yes, if it's not fun, you're not doing it right, I would say. (laughs) Um, um, Yeah, I mean, I, I remember that reading in Sumer, ancient, um, ancient Mesopotamia in general, they had the idea that non-procreative sex was sacred. These, after all, procreative sex animals do that. Um, this is their logic. Whereas all other forms of sex is like a uh, divine phenomenon. Um, these, That's the ones you do only for fun. And, of course, what is more divine than fun? Um, so that would be one answer of a kind. Uh, maybe they were right with that. Um, but... Um. What was the second part? Um, what is, it? is is fun? The meaning of life.
2: Uh. Yeah. Well, I,
0: I, putting others in a position to have fun, having fun in a way that puts others position to, in, a, in a in a position to have fun, sounds like about as close as you're going to get, is not it? <laughs> here, I actually here I'll end with a story. Um, I had a friend, and I, um, I just read Dostoevsky. Uh, have you ever read the Brothers Karamazov, where they're talking about heaven and hell?
1: No, I have not. But go ahead.
0: Um, there's a scene where the head of the monastery is discussing heaven and hell and how could God punish people, you know, if God is good. Um, and the head of the monastery said, Well, imagine it this way imagine you die and. You are eternally fine, you know, you're, you have no more pain or misery, you just exist in an internal state of, of, of comfort, but you remember absolutely everything that happened in your life and exactly how it affected everybody else. Well, if you're a good person, you'll be happy, right? But if you were a bad person, you'll desperately want to, like, compensate somehow. But what can you do? You're in heaven and everybody's doing fine. Um, so, there's nothing you can do to actually make their lives better because their lives are fine. And, and so you're miserable, and that's all. Okay. So, uh, and I thought that was a very interesting idea. Um, and I mentioned it to a friend of mine uh, many years ago. And he says, No, that's not true. There's things you could do. Because even if you don't have any material needs, you know, hunger or pain, you're still going to be bored. So you could make up games and have fun and, and entertain the other people in heaven, and therefore compensate for your life. Um, and I thought, yeah, in a way, that's the ultimate thing you could do to give oh. Uh, so, so creating a situation where others can have fun, perhaps that's the ultimate.
1: David, uh, that's a great way to finish this conversation. This has been an amazing talk. Now you've made the horrible, horrible mistake of giving me your email address, so that means I'll be bugging you annoyingly over and over again to get you back on the show. David, it really, really, really has been a pleasure. Thanks so much for being on our show, and enjoy the rest of your evening in London. Thanks so much. Take care. Take care, David.
0: This is Hell.
1: The total, brutal, oppressive bureaucracy we find ourselves living in today is a creation of our own choosing. Here to tell us how we can still choose another way before it's too late, David Graeber is the author of the new book, The Utopia of Rules on Technology, Stupidity, and the Secret Joys of Bureaucracy. Welcome back to This is Hell, David. Oh, thanks for having me. Hello. It's great to have you back on the phone, uh, on the phone and on our show this morning, uh, David. So you write, uh, nowadays nobody talks about bureaucracy, but in the middle of the last century, particularly in the late 60s and early 70s, the word, word was everywhere. Everyone seemed to feel that the foibles and absurdities of bureaucratic life and bureaucratic procedures were one of the defining features of modern existence, and as such, imminently eminently worth discussing but since the 1970s there has been a peculiar falling off to you what explains this falling off because it's not like work life is any less bureaucratic simply because it has become paperless do you think that's part of it that we think that the technology because it's become paperless we think that we're even less bureaucratic than we were in the past
0: yeah i think that's true i mean you know our lives are engulfed in paperwork but it's not actually paper so so that's part of it, but part of it too is the fact that our major assumption about bureaucracy—and this wasn't always true—but nowadays, when we hear the word bureaucracy, you think big government, civil servants, uh, pointy-headed bureaucrats. So it's like George Wallace made that uh, expression famous, always referring to like annoying government people who are trying to limit the market and limit our free sort of um, willingness to truck and barter, engage in free contract, and that kind of kind of an Enlightenment myth almost. Um, that's never goes away, but, but it really, really catches up with us recently to the point that the moment I mention the word bureaucracy, people start talking about the government, and that's the only thing they can talk about. But in fact, you know, 95% of the bureaucracy that you deal with on a day-to-day level is either the government has nothing to do with it, or it serves this kind of weird synthesis of public and private. So there's distinctions of you know, corporate bureaucracies and government bureaucracies are almost meaningless at this point. I give the example of banks. I was on the phone. I live in England now. Um, I was on the phone with Bank of America because they introduced some new security system that became impossible to check my account. And I tried to figure out a way that I actually could check my account. It took about an hour. I got bounced back and forth between 17 desks and had to reenter all sorts of data four or five times, and I kept losing it. Classic bureaucratic runaround, right? Um, now, was that public or private? Well, it's a private bank, right? If you complain to the bank, you know they always say the same thing. Well, you know, there's all these government regulations that really ties our hand.'s It's right. complicated. But then if you look at how they actually come up with that, um, those government regulations, half of it's written by the bank. You know, they, they have their lobbyists. They come up with proposals. They give a lot of money to the politicians. They sit down with them, and they sort of work something out. Basically the bank writes the regulations which which the government then uses to um regulate it, but also regulate us because almost everything we do is is actually regulated by these weird public private hybrid rule rules and laws.
1: You know, I was <sighs> While you were just answering, the, uh, replying to my uh, question, I was thinking about uh, this whole story that's going on with this yeah. scandal with this representative Aaron Schock here in the United States. Who's, uh, you know, I haven't been following that one. Hor- horrible spending yeah. habits. This guy, he he made a uh, made his office okay. look like Downton Abbey. Then they found out that the people who gave <laughs> okay. him the money to do that were a contractor. They didn't give him the money; they just did it for free. That led to a whole bunch of scandals. He's uh-huh. been on the front of Men's Health magazine, showing off his abs. They found out that he's been spending and spending and spending, tons of taxpayer money, and it looks like he's just one of those people who is a a rent-a-Congressman from, uh, you know, like maybe Caterpillar or some uh, Peoria uh, corporation. But the whole story has been about his spending habits. It's not about who the people are who were giving him money for campaign funds or trying to find (laughs) out which legislation um, he may have passed to represent those concerns. Is this the same kind of avoiding the bureaucracy situation?
0: Well, exactly. I mean, well, if you talk about corruption, if you look on paper, in theory, the most corrupt countries in the world, they always have, like, Nigeria or Russia, countries like that. And then America is supposed to be one of the least corrupt. But that's because in Russia or Nigeria, giving a politician money to influence their vote is still illegal. Here it's not. It's just been totally normalized.
1: (laughs) Which is beautiful, right? So that's why they're not breaking the law. You don't want these people to become criminals for doing the, what they're doing, right?
0: Exactly. So if you legalize bribery, I mean, all this stuff that's illegal in other countries is legal here. I have a friend who um, was from South Africa was trying to get his passport or his visa expedited. And he said, on the form, you know, it says, all right, you know, here's what you pay to get your visa. It might take two weeks. Here's like, you know, if you want to get $400, we'll do it tomorrow. And it's just a box to check. You know, this is like any other country. You have to put that in an envelope and like slip it under the desk.
1: I love that though That's very efficient It gets out the middleman. man uh, you, you write how the mainstream <laughs> exactly. left you, you write how uh, the mainstream left Or what is supposed to pass for the left these days Has come to offer little more than a watered down version Of the right wing's ver- uh, language When it comes to yeah. being critical of bureaucracy Bill Clinton for instance Had spent so much of his career bashing civil servants <laughs> That after the Oklahoma City bombing He actually felt moved to remind Americans That public servants were human beings Unto themselves and promised never to To use the word quote unquote bureaucrat again. Why is it such a, uh, why is uh, bureaucrats such a vulnerable target? What is something we depend on so much? Why do they seem to lack a voice?
0: The reason why is because bureaucracy, your, your actual experience of dealing with bureaucrats is of, you know, annoying officious people who make you feel like an idiot. And there's something about, Acting within a bureaucratic environment, and this is actually something that, as an anthropologist, I find quite fascinating. Um, why is it that when we are in a bureaucratic environment, not only is the whole thing set up to make us feel like an idiot, but we actually start to act like an idiot? I mean, I like to think I'm a fairly smart guy, but you know, I find myself when I'm filling out forms just making obvious, stupid mistakes, and then people look at you and like look at you like you're an idiot. And oh my God, they're right; I put the thing on the wrong way. Um, so, so, so there's something about the experience which is essentially. Humiliating. It's it's a form of utopianism. I always say um, bureaucracy. The classical critique of countries like the Soviet Union, with you know the sort of right wing critique of state socialism, is always well, it's utopian. These guys they have this sort of idealized image of how people should behave, and they make up a whole set of rules, they trying to shape them into that shape, but people won't fit in that shape. So you know. When they realize that, when people don't act like they're supposed to behave and break the rules, instead of saying, oh, we, we need to re-examine our rules, they say, oh, these people are obviously inadequate, and they lock them up or punish them some something. Now, actually, that's, not, that's basically how bureaucracy always works. But um, the amazing thing is that, that that type of bureaucratic utopianism has now become the major engine for profit accumulation in capitalism. If you look at like 19 uh, I think 2009, the last figures are available. The uh, biggest bank in America is J.P. Morgan Chase. 71% of their profits came from fees and penalties. So basically what they do for a living is they make up rules that they know you can't follow. And then when you don't follow it, instead of saying, oh, we need to readjust the rules, they say, oh, well, obviously you're, you're guilty of something. And they, they fine you. And that's how they make their money. now.
1: So how... That public-private partnership, which everybody loves, right? The yeah. public-private partnership is the perfect <laughs> well, concession. <nothing> <laughs> be, I know. is the perfect concession between the Democrats and the Republicans, right? The uh, Democrats right, get yeah. their public everybody side. Everybody in Washington loves and nobody anywhere else. Exactly, exactly. So uh, why is that not what's best for either the right or the left?
0: Well, you know, I think that one reason that the right has been taking the populist and working-class vote Uh, And the left has basically lost it. Is that you know since people like Clinton, Blair, um, all these sort of new uh, new Democrats, new Labour, all these kind of guys. I mean, they're basically um, corporate leftists, and 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 they really represent the professional managerial class. They dump their working class constituencies that used to exist in 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 working left parties. They adopt these basically bureaucrats and professionals is their core constituency. And and then they come up with this politics that only makes sense to people like that, where you kind of let's adopt the worst elements of the market and of bureaucracy and kind of fuse them together. And and maybe if you're a hospital administrator, this is cool. But anybody else in the world this is like the worst nightmare you can have. Now the right wing um, you know, is divided in you could say in, in two halves. There's the sort of Conservative, authoritarian, fascist left, let's say, and then you have the libertarian free market left. Well, the well, libertarians, at least they have a critique of bureaucracy, and the fascists, at least they have a critique of the market. I mean, fascists are, you know, they're all for the welfare state, they just want it only for white people. Um, so, you know, they, either one has some kind of critique of this sort of bureaucratic, um, bureaucratic, corporate market fusion, but the left doesn't. There's no critique of either.
1: Right and why the mainstream? Left, why you know, the acceptable? Left. Right, but why don't they have that? Is that simply because they've had to move so much to the right in order to attain the money that they think they need, uh, attain the campaign funds they need, so they can get the <laughs> Reagan Democrats? Yeah, well,
0: I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a system of bribery. I mean, they're not allowed to actually promote actual left wing policies. Um, you know, real left policies are, are just ruled out from the beginning, um, and I think even more, like, the institutional left hasn't really come to terms intellectually with the way that capitalism has changed. Um, I think in the 60s, there was a real left-wing critique of bureaucracy. I mean, if you listen to music from the 60s, they're complaining about, you know, Union bureaucrats and and civil servants and all that kind of stuff, just as much as they're complaining about capital, if not more so. Um, and at the time, it was a critique of corporatism. You know, you had these giant corporations where these kind of where the workers were really loyal to the company, but the company is also loyal to the workers. So the result politically is kind of scary. That's like this sort Archie Bunker territory. You know, you have this right-wing working class, it's hyper-nationalist, and they see finance as the enemy of those guys back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, even the 70s. Um, you know, the corporation is, is this big happy family, and the investors are kind of these outsiders. And the most extreme form of that is fascism, where they want to kill the outsiders. You know, they assume that the financier guys are all Jews and you're know, awesome. But, but, but nonetheless, that model was very common, this corporatist model. And there's various technical reasons why that happens. Um, and, and as a result, you know, social democracy, fascism, even state communism was kind of a lot more similar in certain structural ways than uh, any of them wanted to make out. And the left wing critique was always to point that out. Now you get the right saying that. They say anything that looks like a welfare state is like both communist and fascist at the same time. But that, that critique no longer has anything to do with what's going on. Because it used what really happened in the seventies was that the sort of upper echelons of the corporate bureaucracy who used to be loyal to the company. There was lifetime employment. Uh, you know, they saw themselves as basically in the business of making cars or basically in the business of making perfume or food or whatever it is they were making. You know, those guys essentially fused with the financial class, and both of them became the sort of new financialized corporate bureaucracy. And this is the thing that really changed the whole landscape. And we talk about financialization. I mean, that's what happened. These guys became the same people. Um, the financial sector became corporatized, you have all these hedge funds and whatnot. Um, you have this Found change in what the guys who are CEOs or the top of corporate um, bureaucracies think they're trying to do. It's all about profits. They're getting paid in stock options. Um, that didn't, wasn't really the big concern back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Now, when that happens, there's a gigantic cultural transformation, uh, and, and that's the beginning of what I call the, the era of total bureaucratization. Um, they're the guys who start pushing computers. And as I point out in the book, you know, back in the 70s when these guys were starting to take charge, computers were a joke. because you know, they did everything wrong. Anytime there was a mistake, just, oh, great, some computer, right? Um, now they've managed to put so much time and energy and investment into these computers that they're the only thing that you kind of can depend on. Um, you know, ATM machines are the only thing that never makes a mistake. Right. Um, so, yeah, so, so that era of reorganization, it's not like computers come along and change everything. It's more like these guys come along and develop certain technologies. Um, really push information technology, certain types of medical technologies, move away from all that space-age stuff, um, which is about actually you know, doing something. And as a result, um, we have this incredible pervasive um, mechanisms uh, that insert bureaucracy into every aspect of our lives, and those bureaucracies themselves become the primary way that money is extracted and that profits are made.
1: Right. And so that uh, that bureaucracy, it, I mean, why can't we be equal in our criticism of the inefficiency of that bureaucracy by saying this happens within the corporate world, this happens in the private sector, and this happens in the public sector? Is the reason that we can't be that critical of it, is the reason that we can't even recognize that we are in this total bureaucracy, is it because of a fear of being anti-capitalism? Is it fear of being critical of capitalism? That's part of it, yeah.
0: It's a fear of being critical of capitalism, and it's also a fear of being, you know, sort of giving up the last little things that you do have from left over from the 60s and 70s, the, you know, the little bits of the welfare state. So much of the left is on defensive, and of course they are afraid to, you know, attack the beast itself. Um, so, so it's a loser's game, you know. I mean, let us, like, desperately try to grapple on to the little bits that we still have of a, of a system that's essentially gone the way of history and will never be restored. Um, but in order to actually take the offensive again, you know, you've got to size up what the system that actually exists is, and and what an alternative to it, within you know, taking into account the major changes that have happened, would actually look like. It's not even clear that the system of extraction we have nowadays, which largely operates on rent extraction, you know, the sort of utopian making up rules you can't follow and find you for it. system of capitalism actually is capitalism. I mean, you could argue over definitions, but, you know, back when I was in school, they told us that capitalism is when you take, you know, your profits indirectly by producing and selling things through wage differentials and whatnot and uh, exploitation of labor. And um, when you take money just directly, via general political means is the term they used to use. That was called feudalism.
1: We are speaking I mean, with
0: what David. We got Gra- now looks a lot more like that.
1: Yeah, we are speaking with David Graeber. He is the author of the new book, "The Utopia of Rules: On Technology Stupidity mm-hmm. and the Secret Joys of Bureaucracy." He teaches anthropology at the London School of Economics, and you may know him from an earlier work uh, by David uh, that is "Debt: The First mm. Five Thousand Years." Uh, so here's the, you were mentioning ATMs, and I'm glad that you mentioned ATMs because it. Every time I hear somebody mm. talk about how ATMs always dispense the right amount of money, the correct amount of money, and you're absolutely Absolutely right. I've never had that error, damn it. But I can put in a, uh, I'll put in a couple of bucks for, uh, you know, a candy bar or a soda in a machine, and they'll say flatten out that dollar bill. You got to make sure that dollar bill is completely flattened out, and it's going to work. Perfect, and then it'll work. Yeah, exactly. And you have to struggle, and you got to struggle, you got to struggle. There is one machine, only one machine that you can put in any crumpled up dollar, five dollar bill, $10, ten, twenty. The lotto machine. I have never had a dollar turned down in a lotto machine, no matter how crumbled, spindled, and mutilated they have been. And I I was just thinking about it because you were talking about how great ATMs are and how they're constantly dispensing the right amount of money.
0: Hmm. Well, I think that that, this is a subtle message. I mean, I I, I first thought about it when back during 2000 uh, when they were talking about the— you know, the, the hanging chats and all these voting machines. Mm-hmm. You just like, assume there's going to be a 0. 0.5 or 1% like rate of error. Right. And, like, you know, we're supposed to be a democracy where voting is our great sacrament. And they just, like, take it for granted there will be a, a fairly large error rate in voting, even though we only do it once every four years. You wouldn't think it would be that hard to fix, right? Um, you know, whereas somebody pointed out, well, you know, every day we do, like, you know, how many million transactions involving ATMs with a 0% rate of error? And it's the only thing like that, you know, anything else, you try to like buy food through those automatic machines and like everything goes wrong, weight's wrong, or this is wrong. (laughs) It's like, it's incredibly annoying. Uh, And it's almost, it seems to function on whatever subtle level is this way of, of telling you that finance is the ultimate reality. It's the only thing you can really depend on. It's the only thing that's really real, which I guess is something they have to do because, um, you know, it's, It's pure fantasy. It's it's a complete abstraction. You know, anything involving actual material stuff goes wrong, but anything involving pure financial abstraction you know, always works perfectly. You know, you're certainly you, saying that is the lack of reality.
1: You're right about how uh, you know, one thing that Americans are good at, they're really good at bureaucracy. The US culture is really good at, your, yeah. at bureaucracy. <laughs> if we're so good at it, then why is it such a winner when it comes to attacking bureaucrats politically? Is it, are we ashamed of how good we are at bureaucracy? I think so, yeah.
0: I, I, I kind of came up with a formula like that because I live now in England. In England, people are almost proud of the fact that they're so bad at bureaucracy. I mean, everything goes wrong all the time and everybody's sort of like, well, what do you expect? Come on. Um, you know, when I came here to London, the first thing I started noticing was all these signs on all the public amenities and official buildings saying, please do not physically attack the petty officials, you know? <laughs> um, and I was like, well, you think normally that would kind of go without saying. Uh, but, you know, after... A month or two, I was like, now I understand, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, it's really annoying. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, America, it's the exact opposite. Here they're proud of being bad at it. In America, they're almost ashamed of being good at it. I guess you could say Germans are proud of being good at it and Russians are ashamed of being bad. So there's a like four, complete four parts out there. But all logical permutations exist somewhere. But, but yeah, I think, you know, some ways I, some, I sometimes... that America is kind of this German country that doesn't want to admit it. You know, think about it. America, I mean, I think there's more German people of German descent than British descent in America. And what are our national foods? Like the hamburger and the frankfurter. How does that happen? (laughs) So
1: we're Germany light? Is that what you're telling us? (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, Americans really are Germans, but they're Germans in denial.
1: <laughs> so, uh, so we're we're really good at bureaucracy. How much do we owe bureaucracy for America's superpower success? Well, I mean it.
0: If you look at history, it was America and Germany that invented corporate capitalism. I mean, British capitalism, they had the East India Company and all that stuff, but actually that stuff went by the boards after the South Sea bubble in like the 1690s. So in the heyday, the Industrial Revolution and the period, Victorian period, British capitalism was mostly little companies. You know, It wasn't bureaucratic. They had high finance and then they had family firms. Um, and it was the Americans and the Germans who invented corporate, bureauc- uh, corporate bureaucratic capitalism all those guys like andrew carnegie and the Robert barons i mean they were really the founders of bureaucratic firms and and um you could say that like you know from first half of the 20th century was basically american corporate capitalism and german corporate capitalism like duking it out over which one would become the successor to england uh, america won obviously uh but and and what's the first thing america does when it takes over the world Takes the mantle from England, immediately sets up a planetary bureaucracy. You get the UN, the IMF, the World Bank. All these, you know, England never tried to create anything like that. That's,
1: uh, obviously. So American bureaucracy, you know, uh, yeah. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, so we have the ver- world's first planetary bureaucratic administration, which nobody really talks about as such, but that's been a major innovation in world history, and it's entirely an American creation.
1: Right, and you point out that that may have actually been what the Occupy movement was about. That may have actually been what the Occupy movement was protesting, whether they knew it or not. Uh, How would you explain to somebody who is... the global
0: justice movement, above all.
1: Right, and so how would you, if you were at Mm -hmm. Occupy Wall Street at the time that it was taking place, how would you explain to somebody who Mm -hmm. was an occupier that this is about an anti-bureaucratization critique that they should be embracing and uh, focusing on?
0: No, just tell them like you know who's administering your bank, you know your 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 student loan debts. I mean, how did that happen? Who created it? Who's 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 in charge of administering it? Who comes after you if you don't pay it on time? I mean, you didn't really have to explain that. People were quite well aware that banks and the government were basically the same thing. I mean, I think back in ninety nine two thousand, it was a little harder actually to explain that to people because it hadn't hit them personally. So there's all this rhetoric about third world debt, and everybody claimed. Framed everything like the free market globalization. Somehow the internet and free trade is this uniting us all. as a spontaneous bottom-up phenomena. But then, if you go look at what actually happened, no, there were all these institutions like the IMF, the World Bank, which were completely imposing their way on on um, countries all over the world, and had and that includes also transnational corporations. It includes NGOs. This is kind of global. Bureaucratic network being set up, so that even in terms of social policy, if you're living in Nepal, like chances are, you know, some NGO is designing your urban planning in Chicago or Switzerland or something like that. But it's a planetary bureaucracy, and and the thing is, you're not supposed to see it. You're supposed to think the market just kind of comes around all by itself, but in fact, it never it never does. Um, if you look at the history of England or America, places where you have what seem like free market systems, actually, it's very very specific government policies that create those markets and maintain them. And you had to do the same thing on a global level. So all we were doing when we, you know, the famous uh, WTO protests in Seattle, the IMF protests, is really pointing out the existence of these institutions that nobody actually knew existed for the most part before that. And as soon as people saw them, I mean, you know, they say in politics, all you have to do is point. That's not really true. But in this case, it was, you know, all you had to do is like, look, there's this thing called the IMF. And it was very interesting because, you know, we couldn't get the media to actually write what we thought was wrong with the IMF. You know, phrases like structural adjustment policy—you just couldn't get that into the news. We tried so hard; we just said it over and over again. Every time there was a reporter, they were like, "No, we're not going to do that." Um, so they wouldn't explain to anybody why we were protesting. But in a way, they didn't have to. All we had to do was point that these institutions exist. There is this global bureaucracy telling people all over the world how to run their economy and what to do, no matter who they elect. And that was enough. You know, Nobody had been aware of it, and as soon as they knew, it, they were not very happy with it
1: and this is in your opinion what makes the global justice movement what made it a success i've had so many conversations with people who yeah. say that the occupy movement was a failure and then i just look at them and i say do you know what the terms 1% and 99% mean and they say yes <laughs> well of course i do and i'm like well what did you what does that mean <laughs> well there's a lot of wealth and wealth inequality and wage inequality okay <laughs> So the Occupy movement was a success because it got you to know that. You say the same thing about the global justice movement. What we hear from people like uh, Oprah Winfrey, for instance, she was upset with the Ferguson protesters because they didn't have a list of demands. Well, the demand is to wake up and realize that there's police violence going on that's racially based all over this country. So... That's the achievement. So, how would you argue to somebody that the global ju- so you're arguing that the global justice movement was a success simply because it got people's attention on things like the WTO, on things like uh, you know um, the CAFTA and all and NAFTA and all those different uh, free trade bills. But why would you say that was a success? Because I think a lot of people who are very pessimistic think that that just like the yeah. Occupy movement failed.
0: Well, the Occupy movement, you know, I mean, first of all, I think the Occupy movement did more in six months than most social movements have ever done in 10 years. Um, I mean, and who knows what, what the world is going to look like 10 years from now as a, as a result of it. But, but, you know, global justice movement, very, very clear what happened. Um, I mean, have you heard about a third world debt crisis recently?
2: <laughs> no. Did
0: people bounce that around? <laughs> no, that's because there isn't one anymore. And why is that? It was because of us. We basically did it. I mean, we did it much faster than we could possibly do. Um, I mean, when we could, when, when, sorry, than we possibly thought we could do. And, and it's quite remarkable if you look at the history um, that I think Latin, Latin American IMF debt was, well, I don't have the exact numbers on me, but you know, it was something like 80 billion or some crazy number like that um, in 2001. And then by 2004, it was 0.5. Um, basically, they got rid of it, and it all happened because of Argentina, and that was directly part of the global justice movement. Um, there was a series of uprisings, again, largely nonviolent uprisings, against a series of governments after the financial crash. And um, people started doing exactly what what we were doing everywhere. It was they started setting up media centers, they started setting up popular assemblies, they started creating alternative currency systems, occupying factories. Instead of going into the political system, they said their slogan was se valient todos," you know, they can all go to hell. Fuck all politicians. We don't like them. Um, we, we're going to create our own society and ignore them. And essentially, what they were doing was exactly what we were doing with Occupy, which was. Daring the politicians to prove to us they were in any way relevant to our real problems and carrying on without, Um, that actually was incredibly successful because the end result was um, was that politicians finally did have to do something, so they defaulted on the Argentine debt. The guy did it was Nestor Kirchner who was an extremely mild social democrat never would have done things like that if people had you know, worked within the system like everybody tells them they're supposed to start petitions run candidates so, I mean nothing would have happened but by de- legitimizing the whole system they brought things to a pass where he had to do something really dramatic so he did and that set off shockwaves where by inter- you know one thing led to another and the IMF was ultimately kicked out of almost every country on earth. IMF was kicked out of East Asia. The IMF was completely kicked out of Latin America and the Caribbean. I think there's two countries in the Caribbean where they can now operate. Everywhere else they're just persona non grata. I mean, it's interesting that nobody knows this. This is how successful the global justice movement was. In fact, within a few years, the IMF itself was on the point of bankruptcy, and it was only the crisis in Europe itself that kind of gave them a new lease on life and excuse for existence.
1: So let's get back to just bureaucracy for a few more questions before I let you go. Uh, the bureaucracy that controls us and we participate within uh, this public-private partnership, how much does this encourage or reinforce wealth disparity or economic and social inequality?
0: Mm-hmm. Wait, say that again. Uh, how how I'm does in the middle of an occupation right now. I'm
1: sorry. Um, what, well, wait, hold a second. Let's not – Occupying the – Go ahead. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I was going to say. Um, I actually had to run off to LSE because the students are occupying part of the old building. So I just came and I uh, had to wave at someone. Uh, I'm about to go in.
1: Wait well, a um, uh, second. So what are so you? What? So what? Why are you occupying?
0: Well, I'm not personally. But the students are I'm right being supportive. Um, well, you know about Amsterdam. You know what's happening there. Ah, uh, news doesn't come to America with this stuff anymore. Yeah, there's a huge occupation going on in the University of at Amsterdam. The whole place is under occupation. the administration is under occupation, has been for weeks. And neoliberal reforms basically, you know, there's been this move to try to like move in the direction of privatizing or effectively privatizing education. And it kinda of hit a watershed and people are fighting back. And in here in the UK in two thousand ten, there's a huge student movement and failed to stop the raising of tuition fees and the effective privatization of the education system, introduction of student loans. But now it's been such an obvious failure that everybody's pushing for free education again. So they've actually set up this thing they call the Free University of London. You know, on the grounds of L S E and we're gonna give free courses and I invite everybody to do it and and, and create a model of, of what a real democratic university system might be like. So this is inspired by Amsterdam and solidarity, and it's starting to happen in a lot of other places too. I think three other universities are already in occupation across London.
1: Yeah, I think I heard about this in Toronto. I didn't know it was related to something that was going on in Amsterdam though. I, all right, now I'm going to have to look into that. And by the way, uh we uh had a colleague of yours on the show a few weeks ago, or over a month ago now. Uh Delar Durick and uh Dirich, uh the Kurdistan from Ro- Rojava, uh she was one of the uh oh, contingent Dilar.
2: Dilar is great. Right. Yes,
1: she was yeah. she was amazing on our show. Yes, and before very, very I, I I do have I have some more questions for you about the, about your book, but uh, before I forget,
0: yeah, we were we were in Syria together in earlier December, early December.
1: Right. Tell me what. So, what did you, so you, you think of, of what did you think yeah. of Rojava as somebody who isn't obviously a Kurdish refugee, somebody who has uh, some kind of an outside <laughs> perspective? Uh, what did you think of it?
0: I thought it was incredibly impressive, I, I must admit. Um, you know, I'd never actually been in the middle of a revolutionary society before. Um, you know, I've read a lot about it, and I've been in sort of minor revolutionary free spaces of many, many kinds. But this was, you know, I mean, my first reaction is like, wow, this is like someone took like about two, 3,000 people just like me and sort of let them loose on a small Middle Eastern country, you know, they could do anything they wanted. <laughs> this is great. Um, and obviously you know it was very very much a spontaneous bottom up assault thing of self organization but um you know there's all these people with these wild crazy projects and uh, which were they're setting up these academies um part this is like a key part of, of the revolutionary process there the idea is like democratization of knowledge um, rather than a rule of experts. We need to make knowledge as widely available as possible. So they have a, you know, everything from agricultural or economic um, academies where they teach you how to re- set up a co-op to police academies. And they say, well, you know, our ultimate aim is to give everyone in the country six months of police training and then abolish the police. Um, and, you know, and they have feminist academies and political academies and, and um so There's all these like wild schemes. There was this like crazy doctor who wanted to turn all cities into 70 percent green space because he felt it would like largely eliminate um, heart disease.: <laughs> I like,
1: and, like that. That sounds great. stress. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Well, wow, I'm very it's jealous. You know, a wonderful I, place. I sent the uh, interview to uh, Noam Chomsky, and he got back in touch with me right away, and he said this is an amazing interview, and he was really interested in going to Rojava. And I said, I will connect you with Dilar then, yeah, because you should. you should definitely go. All right, so just a <laughs> couple more questions.
0: You know now? Because he's been, he's been skeptical in the past. I'm glad. I'm glad that he's coming around.
1: Oh yeah, he was very he very excited about it. He was really excited about the interview. So, and I'll send it to you too, David. Uh, so, mm-hmm. wait uh, before I let you go, okay. a couple more questions. Uh, you believe the financialization of capitalism that occurred when we went off the gold standard in 1971 quote ultimately for profound long term changes. I suspect will ultimately uh, spell the end of capitalism mm-hmm. entirely. I know it's from an earlier book, yeah. but why does financialization okay. mean the end of capitalism eventually? Well,
0: if- I mean, if you look at the sort of long-term historical cycles, capitalism has only really existed within one round of this cycles of alternation between periods of virtual money and periods of bullion money. I mean, I can't go into the whole argument here, but um, basically when I started looking into it, I noticed there's this fascinatingly consistent historical pattern that occurs across the Eurasian continent all all the way back 3,000, 4,000 years ago to, to the present. Um, where you have, you know, first you have virtual credit money. Um, originally, everything's on credit. They don't even have coins or um, physical money in, in ancient Mesopotamia or Egypt, for example. Um, money is virtual unit of account. And then, you know, you get periods dominated by bullion, um, which tend to be where people are actually using physical money in everyday transactions. Such periods tend to be dominated by mass war empires, standing armies, empires, uh, Often slavery, chattel um, slavery across Eurasia, and the first time they did this was around 800 BC to 880. Uh, and then in the Middle Ages, it goes back to virtual money again. You have a long cycle where you know those empires and standing armies and largely slavery kind of disappears across that area. Um, virtual money always—you ha- always have to have some mechanism to protect credit- but- uh, debtors against creditors, otherwise the whole thing is going to go crazy. And um, but. You know, capitalism corresponds to one wing, leg of that cycle where they go back to bullion money, starting really around 1450, but taking off after Columbus comes to the Americas, and there's all this gold and silver moving across the oceans. Um, and, you know, you get back to standing armies and the empires and the slavery, uh, which had largely disappeared, and now we have wage slavery, which is really just a variation of the same thing. You know, you know if Aristotle were here, I always say he would— definitely think that most Americans are slaves, you know, because in the ancient world, the distinction between someone who, like, sells himself because he's in debt to work for somebody else uh, and somebody who rents himself out every day because he's in debt to work for somebody else, you know, is, is not. In fact, it's a minor legal technicality. It's basically the same thing. Um, so, so we have this system that has corresponded in time almost entirely live one leg of a cycle, which is now shifting radically the other way. And of course, at first, they try to do everything all wrong. Um, you know, normally, when you have a system of credit money, you have to set up some institution to protect debtors, so make sure the thing doesn't go crazy, doesn't go out of hand. Um, so either you have jubilees, you cancel the debts, or you have anti-usury laws, so you just ban taking interest entirely. Something like that has to be done. Instead, we set up the IMF and institutions like that, which are designed to do exactly the opposite, to protect creditors against debtors. Well, you know, what's the result? We've had nothing but debt crises and, and, and economic disasters ever since. It's been completely unstable, it's completely unworkable over the long term. So they've got to come up with something. But the something that they're going to come up with, um, you know, there's really no reason to assume that it's going to be capitalism. Uh, there's, and a lot of reasons to assume it won't. For one thing, the system we have is increasingly doesn't look like capitalism already. As I say, most profits are now being taken through rents and through you know, direct extractions, so that corporations and government are fusing together. Um, you know, I don't know how much of the average American's income is just directly taken by the fire sector, by finance, insurance, and real estate but it's pretty thick. You know, if you factor in mortgages, student loans, uh, it seems to be someplace somewhere between 20 and 40% of uh, median household income. So, so it's interesting that the numbers aren't available. You, know, you can get numbers on almost anything else. So right. that one you can't. Right. Um, but, you know, that, is that capitalism anymore? sure we're not in capitalism now.
1: Yeah, that's a really so good that's point.
0: that's what I always say. In 50 years... Yeah. And you know, um they always say that, well, you know, capitalism there might not have been wage labor in factories yet in like, I don't know, sixteen hundred, but it was still it was already capitalism because it's going to lead to that. There's an historical trajectory which moves in that direction. Well, if that's the case, how do we know that like future historians will say we're whatever the next thing is we're in that now? You know, it's not even capitalism anymore. It's something that's only gonna really take form in maybe twenty one fifty.
1: Yeah. Wow, that's pretty frightening. Uh, David, uh, uh, one of the things that you write about in your book, too, is I want to make sure that people understand you also write about the credentialization. And I and uh, you quote uh, one of our correspondents, uh, Sarah Kenzior, at that point. And uh, that credential- oh, yeah, the, the credentialization, uh, one of the ways that I see it expressed all the time right now is through, uh, you know, all the testing that we're doing of students here in the United States. Uh, I mean, that credentialization. And so people should know about that aspect of your book. It's really interesting. And uh, it's just a Great yeah, book. We're
0: actually, we're working on something about that right now with, um, oddly enough, with Brian Eno. Uh, we're going to write something on bullshit education as a, a sequel to the bullshit
1: jobs. Oh, really? that's fantastic yeah. so you should you should play uh, what's, about that, yeah. what is the uh, well what is the, I just got it for my girlfriend the Brian Eno card game where uh, dile- where the, you get dilemmas oblique
0: oh, uh, strategies.
1: Oh, strategies yeah I just got that for my girlie for her, yeah. for her birthday she's very excited about it I love that I love oblique strategies it's really great uh, David one last question for you we've been speaking with David, Gr- David Graber he is the author of the new book The Utopia of Rules on Technology Stupidity mm-hmm. and the Secret Joys of Bureaucracy and he is quickly becoming one of my very very, very favorite guests. Uh, you, uh, one of the things, oh, I, uh, my, my uh, last question for you uh, is, as always, as we do it with all of our guests, is the question from hell. The question <laughs> like we hate that. to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience will hate to response. You write, in contemporary American populism, and increasingly in the rest of the world as well, there can be only one alternative to bureaucracy, and that is the market. Sometimes this is held to mean that government should be run more like a business. Sometimes it is held to mean we should simply get the the bureaucrats out of the way and let nature take its course, which means letting people attend to the business of their lives, untrammeled by endless rules and regulations imposed on them from above. And so allowing the magic of the marketplace to provide its own solutions, democracy thus came to mean the market, uh, bureaucracy in turn, government uh, interference with the market. And this is pretty much what the word continues to mean to this day. But in this definition of democracy, and democracy is not at odds with the market Mm -hmm. but it is the market and i'm asking this because we've talked about fascism recently with historian rick perlstein Mm -hmm. we have done so with our new correspondent Mm -hmm. in switzerland ed sutton how much of a step is democracy meaning the market how much is that a step toward fascism how much is this bureaucracy we have Uh a step towards fascism well
0: you see i think what we're getting at is it resembles certain aspects of fascism but very much departs from others. You know, traditional fascism was based on corporatism. It's based on the idea that workers and bosses have common interests in their big, corp, you know, bureaucratized corporations. That was real ideology when, you know, someone like Mussolini said, fascism means corporatism. That's what he actually meant. Um, you know, there is no class contradiction. We're all, in a, you know, we're all in it together in this sort of nationalist thing. Now, that's gone. I mean, that's, we're not going to have that kind of fascism. What we have instead is this kind of almost individualistic fascism, where everybody is like a little fascist corporation or everybody's like a little fascist nation. Um, this is what I think that all self actualization movement, of the 70s, were really all about. And that's become, you know, all that language of this sort of new bureaucratization, all well, these, you know, excellence and quality and stakeholders and best practice, you know, all that language ultimately traces back. To this kind of individualistic fascist, everything is caused by you, you know, you're responsible for everything that happens to you, all you have to do is, have, it's a kind of a triumph of the will on the individual level. Um, and, and, and that's become, so, so there's traces of fascism, the fascism is reworked into this hyper-individualistic form. Um, so, so I would say that, you know, when it comes to democracy, um, these guys... No interest in democracy, and it's become increasingly clear. Um, the thing, you know, they're, they're telling us democracy is the market, but I'm not saying that's true. I'm not, this is, in fact, it's complete nonsense. The exact opposite is the case, and um, people in charge readily admit it that the democracy is the last thing they have in mind. Um, actually, they'll usually admit the market the last thing they have in mind too. That's just a line. Um, democracy has always been an aspiration. This I've always pointed this out. Uh, it's not been an aspiration of the people in power either. Uh, if you look at it, you know, nowhere in the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution does it say anything about America being a democracy. Those guys hated democracy. They were completely against it. They set up a system to stop democracy, and they said so. Um, read the Federalist Papers, they're totally upfront. front. Um, you know, democracy was this idea that people should be allowed to, if left alone, could govern their affairs collectively in a reasonable and relatively egalitarian fashion. It was an ideal. It was an unrealized ideal, but it was you know, a, a thought, a, a, it's a kind of a glimmering possibility that people have been pursuing and trying to move keep working class people, popular forces of various kinds. And and that form of democracy is profoundly anti Um And that's the thing which, you know, always gives me hope. That it never goes away. People really believe in it. You know, most Americans love the idea of democracy. They just Hate politicians and and are suspicious of government well then obviously they don't think that democracy is basically a matter of electing politicians to run a government and they don't like those things it's something else and that's something else you know the fact that we all love it even though we don't quite know what it is is what gives me hope
1: David I can't believe that you ended this entire <laughs> conversation on the word hope <laughs> That is pretty amazing. That was not the word I was expecting this conversation to end on. I really appreciate you being back on the show. You, have, you made the biggest mistake you've ever made by answering one of my emails, so now I'm going to be bugging you for the rest of your life to come back on the show. I really appreciate you being here. Well, that's and, okay. I like your show. All right. Enjoy the rest of your day in London, and go uh, support the students who are occupying, sir. Off I go now. Bye-bye. Take care. All right. Take care.
0: This is hell.
1: More and more people are realizing that their work is meaningless and the number of BS jobs is growing every day Here to tell us why this is a very serious social problem that desperately needs to be addressed before we all lose our sense of self Anthropologist David Graeber is author of BS Jobs, A Theory Welcome back to This Is Hell, David Thank you very much. It's always great to have you on the show. It's great to hear your voice. And uh, don't forget that we have to keep saying BS because we are regulated yeah, no, by. we a yeah. radio
0: station. <laughs> there are somewhat arbitrary rules, yes.
1: Exactly. Um, just
0: suffice it to say that the title is not actually BS Stop, but you'll have to guess what it actually is.
1: Yes, and uh, we're having technical issues with our <laughs> censoring device, so <laughs> so let's see which well, one I of us... I've to be very, very careful. <laughs> uh, I do, too. So You write how the polling agency, YouGov, took it upon itself to test the hypothesis that people believe that they have BS jobs, meaningless work. Conducted a poll of Britons using language taken directly from your original essay. For example, does your job make a meaningful contribution to the world? Astonishingly, more than a third, 37%, said they believed that it did not, whereas 50% said it did and thirteen percent were uncertain. A later poll in Holland came up with very similar uh, results. So only, yeah, it was even worse. So yeah. only half of respondents believe their work made a meaningful contribution to the world, because it's thirty-seven percent said they didn't. Thirteen said they weren't sure. To you, is meaningless work? What's wrong with capitalism in general, or is it what's wrong with the way we are employing capitalism today? Is this a function of capitalism or a function of what we have done to capitalism?
0: I'm not even sure you can call it capitalism anymore. I mean, you know, the, one of the few things you could definitely say was a positive element of capitalism is that it tended to actually make stuff and produce a consumer plethora, you know, and, and get it to people who actually could afford to, to buy it. You know, that was supposed to be a strong point. Um the plague of bullshit. Sorry, God, I get it. Uh, the plague of the <laughs> jobs... Uh, the plague of, of of these jobs that are pointless jobs. Yes, uh, is that they are they are. Um, is a relatively recent thing. I mean, it's more of the sort of thing you associate with feudalism, where, you know, you pay retainers to sit around making you look good than it is with capitalism. In fact, it was exactly the sort of thing that capitalism was supposed to avoid. You know, back when there was a competitor to capitalism, back when you had state socialism, they were the guys who made up the meaningless employment. You know, if you go buy a, you know, something, a, Buy a magazine in a store in the Soviet Union. You know, there's one guy to take the magazine, and another guy to like give you a coupon for it. Another guy to redeem the coupon. You know, they're just constantly making up unnecessary jobs because they had a full employment policy, and you couldn't get fired once you did get hired. So, so needless to say, you end up in a situation where they used to say, you know, we pretend to work, and they pretend to pay us. So the jobs are. Largely meaningless. But those were sort of meaningless working class jobs. Now, suddenly, capitalism, as soon as the Soviet Union collapses, starts creating these sort of meaningless white collar executive jobs. I mean, there's also meaningless blue collar jobs, but most of them are, are pretty nice office jobs. Often you're a manager, middle manager, you're an executive, even. You get paid pretty well, but you're not actually doing anything. Uh, it's really strange that capitalism produced this.
1: Yeah, it is. And you have all these interviews with people who understand that they have meaningless jobs, who have both uh, meaningless work, BS jobs. I've often had conversations with people who tell me, you won't believe how much I get paid for how little work I do. But at mm-hmm. other times, yeah. those same people will tell me how horrible work has been for them, even working at times six and seven days a week. Well, I realize this is anecdotal, limited my own experiences, and therefore mm-hmm. it can be misleading. When you talk to people who had BS jobs, were they aware they were BS? And uh, like, like those I talk to alternatively uh, working their asses off at their BS jobs. How much do you think the BS nature of their job is masked by how, how hard the work can actually be? Well, this is an interesting
0: thing because I mean, there's two ways to have a BS job. There's some jobs where you just literally don't do anything, um, or you know, you're a receptionist at a place that doesn't really need a receptionist, and so maybe you get one or two calls a day, and otherwise you have to sit there and sort of look like you're shuffling papers or doing something, or you know, you're running a database that no one ever accesses, and every now and then, you know, once a week, someone will call. You know, there are jobs like that, um, and then there's jobs where you're do- you might be working very hard, but the entire enterprise is pointless. And a lot of people felt that way. I should emphasize it. The the key element here is I'm not going to tell anybody who thinks their job is useful or important that they're wrong. You know, that would be obnoxious. Uh, What I'm doing is I'm saying, you know, if you think your job is meaningless, well, I'm not going to argue with you either. I mean, who would know better? Uh, And a lot of people seem to feel that their entire enterprise shouldn't exist.
1: You argue that a mafia hitman is not a BS job and neither is a hairdresser. But one has a horribly negative impact on society, and the other is a mafia hitman. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, hitmen have a negative impact on society, and hairdressing seems to be a frivolous pursuit. So why doesn't violence or frivolity of work make the work meaningless or the job BS?
0: Mm, okay. Um, first of all, it really depends, again, on the assessment of the person in it. Um, what I found was the service workers in the classic sense of the term— People who cut hair, people who serve coffee, that sort of thing. Those people generally do not think that they're NBS jobs. Um, they might hate their jobs; often they do, but they don't see it as useless or pointless. That they real, you know, you don't get people saying, know, I market selfie sticks. Selfie sticks are stupid as a job. You know, it's a stupid job." I mean, people kind of accept. All right, if there's a demand for this, who am I to say what people should like? So, but on the other hand. Um, there's whole enterprises where, you know, clearly people feel if, the, if these didn't exist, the world would be a better place. I think most corporate lawyers secretly feel that way. You know, if there were no corporate lawyers, that would be great. So there's that distinction. Um the other is the mafia hitman is in a bullshit. God, I keep doing that. Um, the, the, the mafia hitman is in a PS job because because he isn't pretending to be anything other than what he is. So there's no BS element, right? Um, he's, you know, he he doesn't claim that he's beneficial to society, or maybe he does. Nobody really takes it seriously. Um, and you know, he might have a job where the mafia boss hires him as a security guy in his casino, with, you know, as cover. Well, that might be a BS job because he isn't really doing it; he's pretending to be something else. But you know, if he's just going around saying, "I'm hired muscle," watch out. Well, you know, he's not socially beneficial, but there's no there's no BS element because he's not pretending to be anything other than what he is.
1: You also define the list of BS jobs falling into five categories, and one of the categories is goons. Goons are people whose jobs have an aggressive element, but crucially, who exist only because other people employ them. And you use National Armed Forces as an example. How are the troops a BS job, but mafia hitmen are not?
0: Well, the troops aren't necessarily. I was just giving them as an example. Um, for example, of people who don't only exist because other people do. They don't build their BS job. Again, I'm not going to argue with them. But, you know, some might. But I think most don't. And also you have to bear in mind armies do a lot of things other than simply protect against other armies. And, and people in armies are aware of that. But, so I wasn't actually saying that. I, what I was trying to do is, in that section where I categorize people, is take the 250-odd testimonies I had received, because that's what I did. I, I went off and solicited um, and said, all right, have you ever had a really pointless job? I did this on Twitter, so obviously there's a slight bias, right? Um, so it's, uh, the 68,000 roughly people who follow me on Twitter are probably skewed in all sorts of different ways, but nonetheless, you have to get a sample somehow. And so I said, well, have you ever had a pointless job? Tell me all about it. You know? give, give me all the details. What was it like? Did people know? Did your boss know? Yeah. And, and I got out a whole bunch of testimonies. And what I was doing in that section was sorting through the various types and how people themselves explained how that job came about and why they felt it was BS. So a lot of people wrote in and said things like, I'm a telemarketer. This is complete nonsense. There shouldn't be telemarketers. I'm just annoying people or trying to rip them off. I hate it. It's terrible. So you know, if you're providing, if you're cutting people's hair or you're you're providing coffee, well, you know whether or not you think it's good coffee or or whether you think they have idiotic hairstyle, um, it doesn't matter because you, if you feel you're providing something, but someone like a telemarketer didn't. They they really felt bad. They were being forced to scam people who they didn't really want to scam. Um, And I don't know if there's anybody I talked to as a telemarketer who didn't feel their job shouldn't exist. So, why do telemarketers exist? I mean, largely just because it's profitable for people. They're a scam, but insofar as there's anything else, you know. And I talked to people in businesses. I said, "Well, you you employ telemarketers as other people have them. You don't need them unless someone else has them." I realize the same is true of corporate lawyers. They're a little like feudal lords. Maybe I should have used that as an example instead of armies. It's a little more accurate. You know, feudal lords essentially um, protect you. That was the whole medieval setup, right? There are three, um, there are three categories of people. There's, there's peasants who make food and crafts and, you know, provide, provide the necessary means of life. There's priests who pray for your soul, for everybody. And then there's lords who protect you. Well, who are lords protecting you from? Other lords, right? Um, so if there were no lords, you wouldn't need lords protecting you. So it's a little bit like that. Um, corporate lawyers are the equivalent. you know, They have an aggressive function, but you don't need them unless other people have them. A lot of PR and advertising is like that. And a lot of people who are in PR and advertising did write to me and say that their jobs were pointless and so sort of exist. So I had to have a category to include that.
1: So it, one of the things that I was really fascinated about is how BS jobs, meaningless work, can actually create meaningful work? How much meaningful work that is completely mm-hmm. unrelated to the actual business of the BS job provider are actually created by BS job? Isn't, for instance, a, a corporate psychologist helping workers with mm-hmm. on-the-job stress, isn't that doing mm-hmm. meaningful work?
0: Yes. Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I, George Lutbach likes to use the examples of all-night pizza delivery men and dog washers. said, these are two jobs that only exist because People are working too hard. So it's work that's created because people were working too hard. Is that necessary or not? I mean, in a way, it, again, it feeds off itself a little bit like the corporate lawyers. So you could say that, no, and you could say that, for example, I think Pierre Bourdieu used to do these calculations that you know, when they introduce workplace efficiency um, by speeding things up and making things more flexible and basically oppressing the workers a lot, um, the result is, there's more on-the-job accidents there's more you know domestic violence drunken and broken home uh, people you know can't take it and have nervous breakdowns and have to... so the actual social cost of these speed ups is huge because some you know, the government has to provide someone to take care of you when you get drunk and fall you know get hit by a car because you've been overworked and abused um, but it's never counted as part of the cost of the efficiency, you know, the, the speed-up is, is, is justified by the fact that it saves society all this money. But actually, it doesn't. It just takes the cost and um, turns it over to another part of the state apparatus.
1: That's fascinating. Is is it far more likely that we do not realize we have a BS job if we are doing meaningful work for those who are doing BS jobs? Because yeah, I was talking to a contractor yeah. and he was yeah. telling me how he does meaningful work. He works with his hands, mm-hmm. makes beautiful work, but he realizes the person they are working for that person does meaning uh, meaningless work, which makes their own meaningful work seem meaningless. Uh, seem meaningless. Yeah, yeah. How much can meaningful work contribute to BS jobs and the expansion of meaningless work? That's
0: a really interesting question. I do mention that. Say, like, say it is true that thirty-seven percent. Let's say the guys who are wavering are wrong, and just the thirty-seven percent who say my job is definitely nonsense are uh, are right. Okay. Let's say they're right. Well, that's 37% of all work doesn't need to be done. But what about the guys who are doing support work for that? You know, what about yeah you know, any office where people are just doing some kind of tax scam or something? Somebody's got to water the plants. Somebody's got to do pest control. Somebody's got to do, you know, security. Somebody's got to clean the toilets. You know, that's real work. But it's real work done in support of BS. So, so, this actually creates a conundrum. I mean, what percent is it? I mean, obviously, if you're in a big office building and you're, you're the cleanup guy, probably some of those offices are doing real work. But if you look at proportions of the work that's actually done in our society, and you eliminate, first of all, the jobs that don't need to exist at all, second of all, the unnecessary work those jobs create for others, which is another issue. Uh, and then finally, the real work, which is done, Uh, in order to support the guys doing the nonsense, well, I'm sure you could easily get rid of 50% of the work we do, and there would be no trouble at all.
1: Yes. So you write, one might be tempted to conclude that there is at least one class of people who generally don't realize their jobs are BS, except, of course, what CEOs Mm -hmm. do isn't really BS. For better or for worse, their actions do make a difference in the world. They're just blind to all the BS they create. But if creating the BS is purposeful, how do CEOs not see the BS they create? And can we blame BS work on CEOs for not realizing the work they create is BS?
0: Well, obviously the other thing is that's not the only thing they
1: do. But it's a lot of what they do.
0: And and I think the thing in CEOs and other people in executive positions is that they're just least likely to admit what's going on because they have such a personal stake in it. And and one of the major reasons for the multiplication of these forms of pointless employment is the fact that in large corporations, you know, if you have a you know, if you have a firm with five guys probably each one of those five guys is doing something, It seems reasonable to conclude. But if you have a firm with 5,000 people, well, chances are there are various managers and each one has a little empire, and they're vying against each other for prestige and also of other executives based on how many subordinates they have, how many people work in your department. Sometimes pay is directly related to that. So they have no incentive to admit that people are useless. They have every incentive to hire more people under any conditions, uh, as long as it doesn't actively damage the company in some way that people will notice. Um, And they have no incentive to fire anybody. Now, interestingly enough, uh, they are not considered to be a greater manager, if they have a lot of blue-collar workers working under them, that's all filed separately somehow. So they're celebrated for cutting the numbers of workers. In that sense, you know, if you if you're a finance guy or and finance is kind of fused with the upper echelons of corporate bureaucracy now, you know, you might get praised for like reducing the number of delivery guys um so by speeding it up and making their lives miserable and tailorizing it and doing all sorts of terrible things. But you won't be treated that way for the white collar workers. Instead it's exactly the opposite. And I've had guys who are efficiency experts, you know, who were hired to sort of see who could get fired, how they could trim the fat in corporations. And they say, I realize I had a BS job because they're just they're just hiring me as a box picker. They're not going they never do this. In fact One guy said he'd been doing this for a bank for 15 years, and the banks took two banks. And over that time, neither bank had ever actually enacted a single one of the suggestions. Because every time he says, well, this person is unnecessary, this department is unnecessary, this can be computerized, they say, wait a minute, but that would mean I'd lose half my staff. You know, it'd be half as important a person.
1: (laughs) So what explains that if these are uh, BS jobs... The, the, uh, why do they continue and persist? Why hasn't market efficiency, David, yeah, exactly, eliminated right. <laughs> all these B.S. jobs?
0: Well, that's the interesting question. And this is what you get from libertarians all the time, right? And sometimes Marxists, too, because they say, oh, it uh, must be creating surplus value for capitalism or else it wouldn't happen. You know, And it's all this, like, my theory says this, so what you're saying can't be happening. You get that a lot. Uh, but it is happening. Anybody who works in a corporation, you know, immediately who isn't the CEO, uh, you know, will immediately say, oh my God, yeah, it's so true. Uh, so it's a kind of a paradox. One explanation is that the market doesn't have much to do with it, or those elements the market does have to do of don't have much to do of hiring and employment within a, a large corporation or within any sort of bureaucratic operation. Um, another one is that what we have is increasingly not resembling our classic models of capitalism, and is perhaps not capitalism at all. I coined the phrase managerial feudalism to describe this. Managerial feudalism is basically about redistribution of resources. The first example I found of this, which I thought was very telling, was someone who was working for a big accountancy firm. And um, they had a huge pot of money that they were supposed to redistribute because of some banking mistake, PPI. It's well known here. in the UK, but I don't think people know about it in America. Essentially, they made some kind of accounting error, and people were ripped off, and now they have to give it back the money. So there's this huge pot of billions that they're supposed to redistribute to anyone who had a bank account during certain years. Now, what they and what this guy described was intentional mistraining. They would like hire people to redistribute, redistribute the money, then they intentionally train them wrong, or they create systems that work wrong, or they put offices in the wrong city. Or they create rules which made you, like, destroy the necessary documents five times and then try to make them up again. And they were clearly trying to be as inefficient as possible. But it doesn't seem to make sense until you realize that essentially these guys are paid by the hour. You know, the quicker they distribute the money, the less of that money they get. There's a huge pot. And, you know, the more wheels and gears and tunnels and chutes they make the money go through, before it gets to the people who are supposed to get it, the more they keep. And in a way, that's just it's, it's a sort of a, a metaphor, synecdoche, I guess, um, for what's going on in the entire economy. Less and less profit is coming from making and selling things. More and more profit is coming from redistributed stuff. And if you think about it, it also makes sense because it's a necessary result of trickle-down economics. I suddenly had this sort of epiphany the other day. This be a very simple way to think about it. Um, you know, the one thing left and right all agree on is more jobs is always good, which is a part of the reason nobody does anything about this. No one ever says useful jobs; they just say jobs, and they assume jobs are necessarily useful. Okay. So, however, the left wing solution is generally speaking to give money to either poor people or middle class people, who will then go and consume things, consumers. So you give money to consumers. Well, if they're poor, they'll buy food. If they're middle class, they might buy a swimming pool. But either way, you're employing people to make the food or build a swimming pool. So if you give money to poor people, then it creates a certain type of job. Manufacturers, merchants have to hire people to make and sell the swimming pools and food. Um, if, however, you go to the right-wing solution, which is just, say, rich people are job creators. It's up to them to decide you know uh, what to make and who to sell it to. So let's just give money to rich people. Well. Then there's no demand for swimming pools or food. So what are they going to do? And this, this happened recently with the um, latest tax cuts. They asked a whole bunch of pe- uh, people, you know, CEOs, are you going to hire more people uh, just because you got a tax cut? I believe they're manufacturing companies. And of course, they all said no. because like, who's going to buy this? Stuff, right. Um, on the other hand, if you give what they will do is hire flunkies. So. If you give rich people lots and lots of money, well, I guess I'll buy another yacht maybe, but that's pretty limited employment comes from that. So a lot of the money will just get channeled down. It's, it's again, it all has to do with this re- redistrib- redistribution of resources. So they'll just put it, they say, well, when I'm supposed to be job creators, I'll, I'll hire someone. I'll just hire a bunch of flunkies to make me look good. And essentially that's what's going on. <laughs>
1: We are speaking with anthropologist David Graeber, author of BS Jobs, A Theory. David was on our show back in 2015 to discuss his book, The Utopia of Rules. He was also on yeah. back in 2013 when we spoke with him about the original essay that was the uh, inspiration for his new book. That article was entitled On the Phenomenon of BS Jobs. And you can follow David on Twitter at David Graeber, G-R-A-E-B-E-R. Do we not consider the potential meaninglessness of our work and the importance of meaningless work in our economy and its impact on our culture for one of the same reasons many do not criticize capitalism or neoliberalism or those who call themselves patriots not blaming their nation and that is they have a feeling or sense of indebtedness to the system for providing what it does mm. and, and 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 has The privatization of the public sphere, the privatization of many public sector jobs, do you think that has switched allegiances from uh, the public sphere, from the government, from the nation to the private sector?
0: Well, I don't know if people really feel allegiance to the public-private sector, but they do feel that it should be more efficient. Um, Very interesting. If you point out to people that most experiences of bureaucracy you have are with private bureaucracies, you know, like your bank or Apple Computer um, or your wireless guys, uh, and you know what they'll say is, oh, but that's not bureaucracy, that's just poor service. So there's a kind of conception that they shouldn't be like that. I mean, they always are, but they shouldn't be. Um, whereas government, you really don't expect anything else. Uh, so, so there has been a shift in consciousness to that degree, and there has been a lot of people who will necessarily say, oh, all of these BS jobs are really you know, first of all, I think that you're talking about government bureaucrats, but, you know, they certainly exist in government bureaucracies, but less and less because government gets a lot of attention this way. But so there has been a certain degree of political pressure to reduce unnecessary jobs in government. There has been no political pressure whatsoever, quite the opposite, really, about creating unnecessary jobs in the private sector. So to that degree, I, I you could say there's a differential there.
1: You write that the original essay was just one of a series of arguments I was developing at the time about the neoliberal free market ideology that had dominated the world since the days of Thatcher and Reagan was really the opposite of what it claimed to be. It was really a political project dressed up as an economic Mm. one. How much can we say the same thing about BS jobs? Is meaningless work a political project dressed up as an economic one? Are BS jobs not about the market, but control and power over people?
0: Well, the first person to actually make that argument was George Orwell. He said it very explicitly. You know, because I, I said yes in the original essay. And a lot of people, of course, instantly accused me of being a paranoid conspiracy theory guy. But you know, Orwell said it a lot more strongly than I did back in 1943. He said, you know, a lot of useless employment is just the fear of the mob. Uh, people think these guys are such dangerous brutes that we just need to keep them off the streets. better they be doing nothing at all, or work that has, you know, produces nothing at all. Than just left to their own devices, and I think there is that. I, I think you can document fairly clearly that there is a fear of technological unemployment. Keynes coined that term in the 30s, um, and to some degree, it's like in our system, if people aren't working, then they will starve or be unhappy or be miserable. But to some degree, it's like, well we don't want these people to have free time on their hands. People will say it quite explicitly sometimes. Um, The example I always like to give is in the late 60s and early 70s, there was a kind of a collective freakout on the part of the ruling class about, well, you know, they were upset by the counterculture and sort of 60s rebellion. But they started thinking about the space race, the sort of technological change of. and there's, there were a lot of seminars on this. I know people were involved in think tanks at the time. So what everybody was discussing is, what are we going to do with the proletariat when the robots replace all the people? And it's a little bit like the discourse now. Um, and some of this later came to surface in things like Alvin Toffler's book, Future Shock, where they basically directly say that, um, that you know a lot of these disruptions they thought was due to too rapid technological change. And, you know... The basic lines seem to be like, we think this is bad. Oh, my God. Like, you know, in 20 years, the entire working class is going to turn into hippies. What are we going to do?
1: Yeah, that's really shocking to me. So, <laughs> well, you know, uh, is yours not a conspiracy theory then? Because, because those who are doing it are not conspiring to increase their power and control politically. They're simply all trying to flex the same power for the same results. Is meaningless work... Not a conspiracy, because this is merely the business of the wealthy attaining more and more power.
0: Well, I mean, to some degree, you know, a conspiracy doesn't imply its secret, and they're not very secret about it. Um, now that's one point I always make, is that, that these guys regularly do meet together. Um, you know, they go to Davos, and they have little seminars. It's public. You can see what they say. You know, you can go to the G8, where all these, like, leaders and industrialists sit together and say, what are we going to do to the world economy? I mean, this is the kind of stuff that, you know, if they didn't say they were doing it, and you said they were doing it, you'd be a crazy conspiracy theorist. But, but they're totally open about it. You
1: know, how much oh, are, you look at. You know. I was just going to say because I was just following up on something you were saying. How much are um, meaningless jobs a creation then of the automation of the economy? As the economy mm-hmm. becomes, as manufacturing becomes more and more automated, are we going to see mm-hmm. more and more meaningless jobs?
0: Well, if, unless somebody makes a social issue and does something about it. I think we have two ways here. You know, back in the 30s when Keynes was saying, oh, technological unemployment is a crisis, and someone documented how you know, every five or ten years somebody says, oh, my God, we're having a crisis. The machines are going to replace the people. We're going to have math unemployment. What are we going to do? So the whole rise of the robot discourse nowadays is not new. So some people will say, well, look, it's, it's obviously nonsense. Economies adjust they make up new needs. Um, we could be working 15-hour weeks, but we chose not to, you know, uh, so forth and so on. Um, but actually, you could make the argument that technological um, unemployment did occur, you know, that, that um, actually, from the perspective of Keynes, all these guys are unemployed. They just shove them in these jobs where they pretend to work because we just have this combination of a need to keep them off the streets politically, and this is very important. because I said, it's not just a political thing, it's a moral and political thing. We have this felt idea that people should be working. And it's true that that idea is very convenient to those in power, but it's not simply an effective power. It's, it's a, there's a long, long, long theological social history which lies behind how we came to the point where we could feel that, somebody, first of all, that Doing nothing is so bad that it's better to sit there and you know dig a hole and fill it in again all day than to sit around and do nothing at all. First of all, that, and second of all, the fact that if you're not just digging a hole and filling it in all day, but doing something that's actually useful, you're less virtuous in a way because you know you're getting some kind of gratification out of it.
1: So. Because you write about pretending to work to appease a jealous boss. There may not even be an actual boss breathing down one's neck. In fact, usually (laughs) there isn't. But ultimately, the need to play a game of make-believe, not of one's own making, a game that exists only as a form of power imposed on you, is inherently demoralizing. It's no wonder the soul cries out. It is a direct assault on everything that makes us human. How is doing meaningless work an assault on everything that makes us human? Ah, Well,
0: this is very interesting because it has to do with the one sense of self. And a long time ago, I'd heard this expression that just kind of resonated with me. Sometimes you just hear these things and you say, oh, that's really interesting. I need to look into that someday. Someday I'm going to do something with that. You know, at least I do that. Huh? Um, and I'd heard this phrase, the pleasure of being a cause. Because, you know, so many philosophers and so many cynical people, you know, just assume that that we desire power. Human beings want power over others. Be- we're all in a necessary state of competition. Sometimes they think we just like power, like Nietzsche does, or um, you know, or sometimes they say, "Well, we want power to guarantee our access to gratification, food, sex, whatever it is we want." But um, there's an assumption that people wish for power, and 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 actually, an interesting alternative explanation is the one that. I, that it's just pleasurable to be the cause of things. It's not like you want to have power over others. You want to know that you caused stuff. You want to know, you say, look, that changed, and it was me who did that. And, and that's really the underlying urge, which then gets perverted into all these forms of power and dominance. And that urge in itself is, is perfectly innocent and, and, and quite a nice thing. And there's a guy named Carl Gross. Not really sure how to pronounce the German word spell G R O O S, uh, but gross, gross, gross. Anyway, um, he actually did psychological experiments where he discovered that children get their first sense of themselves as autonomous beings independent of the world around it when they realize that they can do things that have predictable effects on the outside world. So, like maybe you're an infant, you move your arm, you knock something over um say, oh, that's interesting uh and then you do it again and the same thing happens you realize oh that's an object and i'm me and i can and if i you know manipulate me in the right way i can have an object on it. and they just get really happy it's gonna be documented they just like laugh with just pure pleasure this is great i can knock over a pen as much as i want and this is like the sort of formative moment when you realize that you're actually a being you exist not when you stare in the mirror. It's, Lacan is wrong, according to Chris. Um it's, it's when you realize that you can have effects on the world. And that kind of happy delight, you know, that, that feeling of this is so cool, I can affect things, sort of underlies your sense of yourself as a person and, and your sense of being in the world. So what I was suggesting is if you take that away, then and, and people have done experiments with that, okay... Kid figures out that he can knock something over predictably, and he's really happy. What happens if we change it so it doesn't work? You know, and because they always set up these evil scenarios, and in fact, kids totally free. You know, they go from being total, in, intensely delighted to confusion, rage, and then almost catatonia. They withdraw from the world. So what I'm suggesting is what's happening in a in a BS job um, is is analogous. And there's also an element of play. This is kind of interesting. Um, because a lot of play is based on that. Um, why we enjoy play is, is our ability to sort of create a world, a make-believe world, uh, is, is the ultimate extension of that you know, ability to be a cause and be separate from the world and also affect it um, in the happiness it brings. But So all these make-believe worlds we create are extensions of that. But this is the opposite. This is a make-believe world you didn't create that's being imposed on you, where you have to pretend that you're doing something, but you're not. So it's a complete inversion of everything he was talking about. So in that sense, you know, if your self and your sense of self and your joy in being a self is based on your ability to predictably have an effect, positive effect on the, on the world as you grow up, to care it affects others positively as well, um, then being forced into an imaginary situation where you're pretending to work but actually you're not against your will is the ultimate assault on that sense of self.
1: You write that asserting oneself creatively or politically against pointless employment might be considered a form of spiritual warfare. What do you mean by yeah. spiritual warfare? How could challenging meaningless work and BS jobs be seen as a kind of spiritual violence?
0: Well, so exactly in that sense, if your sense of self and 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 being in the world is based on that, that is the human spirit. In a way that 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 chuckling child who managed to knock something over and can do it regularly is. Your soul. You know, um, this is your sense of what you are in the world, and any attack on that is an attack on the basis of your existence. You know, this is a struggle for a sort of spiritual survival in a certain way, um, at least so could could be so so imagined. Uh, and and it's I wanted to put it in these strong terms, partly because I want people to feel that they're not crazy, essentially. Because what we're taught is that we're a bunch of people who are essentially all a bunch of lazy scroungers. Um, this is economic theory. This assumes this automatically. Everybody wants um, to put out the minimum effort to get the maximum reward. You know, so invest the in minimum resources and, and your own efforts are part of those resources to get the maximum out of it, profit. And... That's what motivates all human beings to do everything. And it's rational and it's good. And you know, they actually like that. People should. People are like that. People should be like that. Uh, and if that were true, of course, if suddenly I get a job where I'm being paid a professional level salary to answer two phone calls a day, um, and otherwise just look busy, I would be delighted, right? You know, I'm getting something for nothing. I have almost no effort whatsoever and and major rewards so the rational economic actor should be pleased as punch but the rational economic actor isn't pleased as punch he's sitting there saying why am i so upset (laughs) you know why is this driving me crazy and and it's a real moral confusion results because you feel i'm being made into a i'm a parasite but i don't want to be a parasite i'm being forced to be a parasite i'm being forced to pretend i'm not a parasite you know uh Am I allowed to complain? You know, I feel miserable, but I have no justification for feeling miserable. That makes it even worse. So, in a way, this is why I call it spiritual warfare. You're justified in, in, in a different sense of self. You need to assert that, and we need to change people's basic conceptions of what people are and what they're about.
1: That reminds me of uh, recent conversations we've had with George Monbiot on loneliness, Mm. with Johan Hari on depression. How much are meaningless work and and BS jobs a result Mm -hmm. of our economy being a scam? Because you write, many who work in the fire sector, finance, insurance, real estate, are convinced that almost everything done in it is basically a scam. How much are BS jobs Mm -hmm. then simply a result of our entire economy being propped up by a scam?
0: well yeah i'm when I say it's like feudalism, maybe I'm being gentle and nice, you know I mean maybe I'm not putting it um as harshly as I could, which is simply that we're ripping people off um I think a lot of it is um one thing I've been looking into for years, and i I haven't really got the statistics is how much of the sort of average family income is just taken away by people in the fire sector because. It used to be that capitalism meant making stuff and selling stuff, and, you know, it was all based on wage labor, right? Uh, So you pay people for a product which is, you know, more valuable than what you're paying them. And, you know, under those circumstances, obviously, it doesn't make sense to hire people who don't do anything. Uh, But increasingly, the profits of major corporations are from either finance or from the financial sections of manufacturing companies. So they'll say, oh, the auto industry is actually making a lot of money. But actually, it's often the case that the auto industry itself is making, or the auto manufacturers themselves are making no money from making and selling cars. They're making money from financing the cars. So if it's all usury and, you know, if it's all finance, and finance is a fancy word for, for other, you know, sort of trading in other people's debts, producing and and trading debts, and of course... Creating those debts all has to do with the legal system. It's all caught up in the government, and as I've written before, as a result, you know, it's really hard to tell what's public and private anymore, and the government itself is no longer simply guaranteeing property relations, which allow you to exploit your workers in the sort of classic Marxist um, capitalist paradigm, but is rather directly playing a role in taking that money out of your bank account, because it's all done through the legal system. Well, if you have that kind of thing, to what degree is it just a scam? I mean, you could definitely think of it that way.
1: Just a couple more questions for you, David. One of the things that you point out is how uh, meaningless work seems to be rewarded, and now meaningful work isn't. And that those who are doing yeah. meaning- meaningless work are often uh, politically motivated or encouraged to not be uh, to be people who are opposed to those who are doing meaningful work. Mm-hmm. So, uh, why do we reward meaningless work and not meaningful work? And is the point of BS jobs? by the boss to divide and conquer workers to get those who are doing bs jobs to undermine those who are actually doing it and to disempower those who have meaningful work
0: well whether they're doing it intentionally or not it certainly has that effect um and you can't imagine that they don't notice that and that they're not at least a little bit pleased with it i would say um yeah, one of the themes that, that really came up repeatedly is the weird way in which it's not just that the more your work benefits others, the less you're likely to get paid for it. It's that a lot of people actually seem to feel that's right. I mean, they don't feel it's right for them, right? You know, they don't say, well, I uh, my work is useful, and it's only right that I should get paid less than that guy who's just sitting in an office doing nothing all day. They don't say that. But in other ways, they do. And they talking about other people's jobs. And I noticed this politically, that um, right-wing populists managed to get people really angry about teachers. And at first, they tried to talk about school administrators. And school administrators actually are causing a lot of the problems in schools. And it didn't take off. No one cared. But then when they say teachers, oh, you know, skyrocketed, like it worked. So they gave up on the administrators. Um, and similarly, uh, auto workers. After the 2008 financial crash, the only people who really had massive economic penalties placed on them, because the bankers still got their bonuses, um, the executives in the various corporations that got bailed out didn't really have to make any sacrifices. Who had to make sacrifices? The guys who were actually making the cars. Which is insane, because, like, how did they, you know, what did they do? Uh, but they caused this whole campaign about, like, oh, look at these guys, or, you know, they're getting $25 an hour, but really they're getting 54 if you count the benefits. And, uh, of course, you'd do that for anybody, right? Um, and they made this whole campaign, which basically said, you know, these guys get to make cars, and then they want middle-class lifestyles, too. These guys get to teach children. There seems to be this idea that if you're doing something which actually benefits society, well, that should be enough. You know, there's this resentment against them, and sometimes it's explicit. People will say, "Well, we wouldn't want uh, people who are just motivated by money to teach our children, so it's only right that we don't pay teachers too much." Yeah. Um, and on the other hand, we do want people who are just motivated by money to do our banking, so apparently, um, so, so that's okay. Um, so there seems to be this weird resentment of people who do things. Um, for any reason other than just the money, even if it's that knowledge, that sort of warm feeling that you are contributing in some way to a society, uh, cars are the quintessential American thing. You know, they are providing us with our national soul. You know, by giving us cars we can drive around in because that's what we are as Americans. You know, uh, they make our life possible. So, should shouldn't that be a reward enough? <laughs> um, and and the same thing you saw this uh, in austerity Europe in the UK. I mean, like. Notoriously, the Tories would like cheer when they voted down bills to raise uh salaries of nurses and and even cops actually um emergency medical technology. I always use examples like you know people you don't love, but have an obviously useful job would be like the guy who gives you the information in the train station you know I mean if he wasn't there, I'd be in trouble right, right. um I'd miss a lot of trains that's a useful function and um you know, but those guys all got their salaries cut after the 2008 economic crash. The bankers didn't. So the only possible way you can explain this, I mean, you could explain it as power, right? Sure. But why did people keep voting for these guys? Why did people not say that's disgusting and, and, and kick him out? Well, part of it seems to be this idea that, well, if you are a teacher, if you are a, a nurse, you have dedicated your life to helping others. So help out, okay? You know we're in a national crisis. Somebody needs to cut the money. Should be people who are altruistic, and you want—I call it moral envy—that people have this feeling that you know it's not discussed in philosophy, as far as I know. There's no actual term for it. So I had to make it up. It's this feeling of resentment of people who try to get are seen as trying to get recognition for being better than you because they actually are better than you in the sense of, you know, they hold themselves to a higher moral standard. People say, like, how dare that person want recognition for being harder working and more generous and kind? Even though they don't actually demand it, they just act that way.
1: Uh, this reminds me the contradiction that I keep getting, David, is I'll have people ask me, "Well, so you must be making money somehow," and they're trying to find a conflict of interest. Then when I tell them, "You know, I don't make any money at this," they get even more paranoid, like they think that I'm up to something else. That so I'm damned if I do, and if I damn I'm damned. Right, you if must
0: I... get something out of it. These rational actors get something out of it, right? So what you're getting out of it is the moral satisfaction. How dare you sit there and think
1: how great you are? <laughs> That's why I need to be a rational actor. I've been an irrational actor for far too long in my life, David. One last question for you, David. And as always, our final question for our guests is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. We've been speaking with anthropologist David Graeber. He is author of BS Jobs, A Theory. And in case you're wondering if my question from hell is, is an anthropologist a BS job? I asked David that back in 2013. So go back and listen to that interview to hear that response. But aside Um, from that, here's my question from hell for you. Okay. How much are BS jobs then contributing to inequality, contributing to climate change? How much is meaningless Mm. work Mm. not only crushing our souls, not only leading to greater and greater desperation for the people uh, at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder, but how much are BS Mm. jobs destroying the planet?
0: Oh, well... Just in terms of inequality, I think inequality can only occur because it's held together politically. And increasingly, what BS jobs have done is created a situation where society is held together by various forms of resentment. That is to say, you know, people in meaningless jobs resent people with actually helpful jobs and try to punish them. Often they try to punish them by creating like, more and more paperwork and um, BS for them to do. Uh, so they can't do their meaningful jobs. So teachers and nurses, for example, have to spend half their time doing paperwork now. Um, meanwhile, people in actual meaningful working class type jobs resent the cultural elite because you know that tiny, tiny percentage of jobs which are both meaningful and well paid um, go only to rich people. So they hate those guys, and and that's how you get Donald Trump basically. Is uh, so. so so inequality is possible partly because our societies are held together by all these hatreds that are ultimately founded on the existence of these kind of jobs. At the same – okay, so the other question of global warming. Well, the statistic I, – I don't know the exact numbers, but um, that really impressed me was that one of the few things that slowed down carbon emissions and might have helped you know, give us time to save the planet, um, the most significant thing in recent years that did that was the 2008 economic crash. That um, you know, after the economic crash, there was a huge slowdown. You know the Baltic dry index collapsed, ships weren't shipping stuff around, uh, production fell, a lot of people were unemployed, and there was less carbon, and, and therefore, you know, uh, the world was a better place. So obviously the burden fell on, on, on the wrong people, but especially as time went on. But think about that. I mean, like probably the thing that would most help us as a planet, is to work less. And it's very interesting that, you know, this is the one thing that the sort of moralists of our time, I always say that pundits and newspaper op-ed writers are the equivalent of, of preachers in our modern society. Uh, they are the moralists of our day. This is the one thing that they just can't conceive. This, anytime there's a crisis, the first thing they all say is, oh, we have to work more. But no, actually, the best way to deal with this crisis is to work much, much less. I will
1: end on that. So great. All we have to do is have another uh, great recession. Thanks, David. I really appreciate that happy (laughs) note that we're ending on. David, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. I really appreciate it. And you know I'm going to be bugging you to get you back on soon. Oh, yeah. Well, do
0: so, because i
1: probably say yes. Okay. I like the probably in there real quick. (laughs) Thank
0: you, David. Well,
1: you never know. Yeah. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Anthropologist David Graeber is author of B.S. Jobs. David is a professor of anthropology at the London School of Economics. He's been on This Is Hell twice in the past, most recently discussed his 2015 book, The Utopia of Rules, which you can find at our website. David was also on back in 2013 when we spoke about the inspiration for his new book. It was an essay that he had written for a then-new magazine called Strike, and the name of that essay was On the Phenomenon of B.S. Jobs. Jobs, which you can easily find online. You can follow David on Twitter at David Graber.
0: You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.